Hey, what is up, everybody? It's been a little bit. Uh, welcome back to the Six Pixels Under podcast. This, of course, is episode 16. Uh, we had a week off last week. I was feeling under the weather coming from the previous uh, podcast, so now I'm feeling much better. And that's good because we have a lot to talk about today. On this week's podcast, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Valve and specifically Artifact and how it's not doing uh, particularly well. Thank you for the awkward message timing, Goosey B. Uh, nice to see you in chat again, as always, and thanks for the bit donation. And what is up, everybody else in chat as well. So we'll also talk a little bit about uh, some new Skyrim mod that's coming out uh, beyond Skyrim, and more specifically the Morrowind portion. There's a little bit of a conspiracy theory to talk about in regards to Portal and also Half-Life 2. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then during the MMOs on the go segment, we have a bunch of news to talk about. Uh, some rumors concerning maybe a Riot MMORPG. Actually add that to the tagline. <laughs> uh, we're doing it live. We'll also talk about maybe some more uh, MMOs or MMO happenings to look forward to in 2019. We will also talk a little bit about the differences between classic and progression servers, of course. Uh, that's always a hot topic for me. And then, of course, more things like Nexon's founder looking to sell the company, Fallen Earth, a.k.a. Little Ur Orbit, possibly saying that they have to rebuild the game and are willing to rebuild the game. Lots to talk about in the world of MMOs. Also this week, since I wanted to run the podcast a little bit shorter today, I will, uh, and also because I have no guest, I will ask uh, you guys to send me questions. Go ahead and at me in chat or at card. Card is actually in uh, Discord right now. So if you want to ask him or, or see if you could ask me a question, um, just go ahead and join the podcast lobby. He'll help you out with getting in touch with me. So again, if you have any questions, anything you want to talk about during the podcast, feel free to uh, at any one of us and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Since today's not so structured, um, I'm looking to have you guys, uh, I guess, uh, some audience impact hey, from the very beginning. But you've got the Can we troll guy. him? I'm good at shooting people, cracking wise, and pretending <clears> to know how to fight. I appreciate the Twitch Prime sub, uh, Lions. Welcome back. Okay, let's go ahead and get started today, huh? It's a little bit different of a day to me. I don't feel nearly as uh, s stressed about anything. I guess that's good because I'm not super sick. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about, um, we already have the current gaming news a little bit up, so I'll go ahead and leave that there. Um, but it's specifically, there's been some news rega regarding uh, Valve's recent artifact launch. For those who haven't been following the story, uh, Valve announced their artifact game a number of years back now. And for those that don't remember <laughs> what that reception was initially, because um, remember, it's always important to look at things in, you know, in context. Here was after they announced it at uh, the International, I believe it was, the Dota International, about a year ago, two years ago now. Wait, let me, let me skip to the perfect part. <laughs> I 
All right, I mean, I, I feel like right there already, they should already be a little bit worried, right? But they probably just chalked it up to, uh, people are here to see the international. They don't really necessarily care about the initial reception, but that's already been kind of proven wrong in multiple uh, instances. We do care about how things are uh, unveiled to us. And in this particular instance, I think people are just tired of card games in the same way that maybe they will begin to get tired of Battle Royales. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but um, that's, I guess, kind of what I'm thinking right now. Now, apparently the article states that uh, Artifact is no longer in the top 100 most played games, which is pretty significant because if you think about any Valve game, period, I mean, I can't think of any other Valve game uh, regularly that doesn't place in the top 100 most played. So when you have a new game that comes out, one that's obviously greatly hyped, one that obviously has a budget and you put a certain amount of money into it and you need to get some sort of uh, you know, return on your investment, it doesn't look like they're necessarily doing so well so far. And now, of course, there's many different reasons, I'm sure. Um, you or I, the audience here, we're kind of just taking whatever information we're given and obviously, this is not so good information. It clearly shows that the game is doesn't have the same staying power, perhaps, as uh, other games have had in the past, and certainly not other card games. Um, MTG Arena has done particularly well lately. Obviously, Hearthstone now has been around um, for a bit on the interwebs, doing particularly well. I don't want to talk too much about the technical reasons, because that's something that we could possibly cover in a death of a game. But I'll be honest, a couple of people kept asking me about uh, Death of a Games and saying, would Artifact be considered to be a game that is dying or could be considered for the series? And I mean, right now, it's too soon to say. I mean, I feel like I can answer this question pretty broadly, since most people ask kind of similar questions in this regard. But generally speaking, I'm not going to make a video on a game that's so early in its like initial unveilment, because it's just... There's so many instances where they could have a complete turnaround and then my video just ends up looking completely obsolete. Um, so there's that. There's also that, ultimately speaking, I don't have to rush whenever I do declare a game to be dead, of course, according to my own um, series standards. But with artifacts, um, I, I th I've noticed this with Fallout, I've noticed this with a couple more recent games, even uh, WoW you're seeing this. It seems like people want to be kind of vindicated whenever something doesn't do particularly well. They, they want someone like me to just come in and be like, yeah, it's not doing well, and here's why. But I guess um, there's tons of YouTubers who do kind of these reaction, what I call reactionary videos, where it's typically like following a trend or following some big article like this they make a video and proceed to go on about how it's like this big uh impactful thing in reality does this necessarily mean anything in and of itself not really it obviously does show that the game probably isn't fun enough to have the staying power that it possibly needs especially for a card game um it's business model if people aren't familiar with it requires you to purchase a 20 dollar game which essentially gives you the cards Reality, it's not really a different business model than any of the other TCGs, or in this case, um, what do they call the electronic version of trading card games? It's not TCGs because you don't actually trade the cards, like in the case of Hearthstone. Is it just a virtual card game? I'm not really sure what word they use for that. The point being, 
I don't really think the pricing is the biggest issue here because, yes, semantics will annoy people. They'll say, why do I have to pay $20 when Hearthstone's free? Hearthstone ain't really free. I mean, the game is designed to not necessarily be free, right? Free-to-play games don't want to be played only in free ways, right? Because they, they have monetary goals and monetary... Um, uh, you know, needs, right? They need to monetize the game in order to make money, in order to keep making content, and in order to keep, obviously, uh, the game running. Whenever Artifact de uh, debuted, it managed to get up to 60,000 concurrent players. And that, of course, as we've proved many time and, uh, uh, you know, many time again, the initial population of players concurrent doesn't really matter, right? Because it's kind of just like, sure, games can get, X amount of population when they first open their doors, and especially Artifact, a game made by Valve, right? It's going to have the audience initially, but right now, it, it doesn't seem like it's it's been able to kind of keep that audience. If you look at kind of like, um, let's start maybe from the very beginning, uh, looking at some population data here. Apparently their, their all-time highest peak was 60,000 players in their 24-hour peak, has been a, a, an average of, or sorry, a, a peak of 5,049 players. Current players are at 4,393. Again, take these stats with a, a grain of salt because they're not always 100% accurate. Sometimes it doesn't count or count for regions and, and whatever else. But in this particular case, I think it's pretty kind of easy to see here that in December, we had peak players of 46,000. In November, we had peak players of 60,000. Um, they, they already had a 14,000, maybe a little bit more person drop, but since December and just the last 30 days in particular, they've dropped 40% of their population. I mean, this is like bordering, uh, sorry, bordering on MMO levels of like, um, exodus of players, right? You typically only see this with like MMOs, which makes me think a couple of things. It makes me think that the game isn't sustainable in its current model, right? They need to either change the way it plays or change the way they monetize it or change something significant, right? Uh, which is not something that often happens, but I mean, of course, they're not going to just abandon their product. So I, I think it's more likely that the game maybe does a couple big changes and kind of has the heroes of the storm approach where it has basically what you would call like a perfunctory, like a very small kind of outskirts level of success versus obviously it's competition like Hearthstone, um, MTG. There's a, I mean, at this point, there's so many other card games. Lord of the Rings has a card game. Um, what else did I recently play that has a card game? Obviously, Star Wars has card games. Um, just about everything these days is getting a card game. I don't know. It's, it's, it's certainly interesting to think about. I don't think this is enough to, to say what the forecast of the game is going to be yet. But um, it is kind of... You're seeing the early stages of a game that um, is going to have quite the catastrophic failure. And I mean, when you consider just the profile of a kind of game like this, this is definitely in the, in the ballpark of uh, a game that I would want to cover on the series for sure. No Warhammer CCG yet? I'm a bit surprised by that, Limpos. I'll be honest. I'm a bit surprised by that. I hear about that as well, MGPT. I hear that's because um, they have Second Dinner, a.k.a. Ben Broad Squad, 
already has license to make a Marvel game. So just about everybody in the world is expecting that the game in particular is going to be a card game, which is probably a pretty good guess, but obviously we don't necessarily know yet. Gwent is another one. That's a good point as well. Yes, they tried to push artifacts. Somebody said, uh, um, Germatu says it's because the guy who essentially created magic was behind it. And that's kind of what I remember as well. That was like one of the big, um, the guy who was behind it, um, what, what was his name? Off the top of my head, I can't remember. But um, yeah, I think he was in charge of kind of designing this game. So I'll, I'll move on a bit here. I don't think there's much more to kind of go into. Again, this is, um, it's like when you observe a chain of events, especially early on. So let's like look at um, Artifact and think about it kind of conceptually. So Valve launches Artifact and after two months loses like 40 to 60% of its player base, um, maybe even potentially more now. <coughs> Excuse me, based on what I'm seeing. They obviously can't panic, right? They can't just panic like most people want to panic. The first thing that they can't do is they, they just can't start drastically changing everything. They have to obviously look at the game, look at the player feedback that they're getting, and try and understand kind of what the issue is in regards to their game. And I mean, they have uh, a really good assist in this way in that you can go to... Um, that's not what I wanted to go to. Why doesn't it immediately go to the Steam page? Okay. So things that I like to do whenever I'm wondering why games aren't particularly doing well is, of course, play them myself. That's always a good place to start. But also another good place to start is other people's experiences, right? So I, I typically don't really watch other critics' reviews except whenever I'm doing a Death of a Game video because it does kind of help uh, round out uh, things, but it helps tell a good story because critics are good at kind of like I know it sounds bad, but in many cases, critics are good at kind of like getting or the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, rather. The cart before the horse, meaning like they, they proclaim that the game is so great and whatever else before they actually have time to kind of play it at length. So it's good to kind of show people like a snapshot of what critics thought at the beginning of a particular game. And as you saw a couple of the reviews that I picked up, critics were saying 7 out of 10, you know, maybe 6 out of 10. Critics weren't thinking so highly. Um, the audience's uh, opinion of it is actually even lower. 53% of the 15,000 reviews so far are, <laughs> excuse me, are positive. And so when I go down here and I love reading Steam reviews, despite people thinking that it's not necessarily useful. Anecdotes within themselves, of course, aren't necessarily useful. Like, for example, if somebody asks what my opinion is of Artifact and I give them my specific opinion, while it is valid and probably, um, obviously, based on something, it's not necessarily, like, good criticism, right? We don't necessarily know if everybody's opinion of something is good criticism. So it isn't useful to always just kind of take general opinions as law. So I never like to necessarily, although I bring up aggregate scores on the podcast and, and in my videos, I don't necessarily like to like um, treat them as the law. So when I go down here and I look at the reviews, um, obviously seeing 6,000 positive reviews here on the first day and then seeing 4,000 negative, you already know that's pretty bad, right? Like a 60% success rate with reviews is probably not necessarily good. 
it's good enough to probably keep running, right? We've seen that with games like um, Ark and um, Daisy, um, a couple other of those types of um, controversial games don't even necessarily have the best reviews about them. In fact, in many cases, they have less than 50% overall positive reviews. Um, but, you know, of course, when the market is a little bit dry in certain ways, people are willing to take things that they may or might not necessarily uh, allow to, or shouldn't allow to take, I should say, in the future. But we'll talk about that a little bit more when I talk more about Atlas and uh, Wildcard. Now, the point that I wanted to make here from reading the uh, reviews, here we already have somebody with 156 hours in the game. That's a lot considering the game is only about less than two months old, essentially, right? And so this guy actually did some calculations depending on your return on what you would get from doing expert draft and constructed mode. And so the average return rate as this guy figures out, right? And again, this is just seconds from me looking at reviews is negative 9.43%. <laughs> the conclusion that he says here, check this out. The average players with a 50% win rate is expected to lose 9.43% of his money each time they play a constructed game for people who maybe not necessarily the biggest fan of statistics to explain this in the simplest terms whenever you want to play a ranked mode it requires you to purchase something in order to play that ranked mode right some games have concepts like this um mtg has always had event tickets which are the same concept you buy an event ticket you get access to a specific event that already means you're at a deficit right card games this is very common in card games um, because card games are typically very competitive and have league structures or specific rule structures. So you have to pay a certain amount. Let's say you pay 500 gold or whatever it is in order to get into the pool. But since the average player has a win rate of 50%, he kind of makes a good point here that if you break that down the statistics based on what is considered like average to win and average to lose, for the average player, every time they spend a certain amount of money, they're, they're going to be losing at least 9% of whatever they spend. And, and obviously, just from a, a simple economical standpoint, doesn't sound so good. But even from a more just visceral, like consumer standpoint, it doesn't seem good that every time you want to play a game, you feel like you're giving up more than you necessarily give. And this is actually after, if I remember correctly, um, they lowered the gain that they were getting from certain things. I think actually, if I remember correctly, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe Valve actually tweaked these uh, numbers before as well. Right here it says, there's been no substantial change to this, so he's still talking about the same thing we just mentioned. Daily peak concurrent players will drop below 10k in the following few days. He was right about that, by the way. He was like 12 to 20-something days off in terms of like um, how long ago this was posted. But he was absolutely right in that it would drop below 10k players. So, like, it's easy to dismiss random reviews, especially on Steam. But, I mean, you, you and I, um, you know, you being the audience, me being the content creator or nerd slayer, whatever you want to call me. Um, in this particular case, we just took some time to just quickly go through reviews and kind of see why people think the way they think. Right? Because it's, it's never good to just look at this and be like, oh, wow, artifacts failing, huh? Like, we have to actually take the time to kind of see, like, what the majority of people's criticism is. And the majority of people's criticism is, guess what? Event tickets, right? It's, it's about monetization. And this doesn't surprise me because this has always been a significant issue in these internet-based TCG games. Because in reality, they aren't actually TCGs. They're CCGs. Uh, collectible card games and not trading card games. 
you have a collection, but you don't actually own any of the cards, right? It's a small distinction, and it's one that people often overlook whenever they say, how come standard card games aren't uh, loot boxes? And it's like, well, it's because you can actually keep the value that you have and then sell the value. In CCGs, you don't own the cards, you can't trade the cards, so essentially there's no monetary value to the card itself um, in reality, which means that if you open a pack and you necessarily lose money, right? Richard Garfield, by the way, is the guy's name. It says it right here. Um, that means that you won't be able to get that value back. So that's kind of what main uh, people's main issue is with loot boxes and why they don't like CCGs versus like TCGs. And I'm not going to sit here and say that TCGs somehow are you know, escape any sort of um, a scrutiny. No, we should still scrutinize uh, TCGs as well because they probably have some very problematic um, problematic business uh, aspects to them. In fact, Card actually brought this up before, and I remember this. TCGs are closer to gambling under Dutch law than a CCG card pack, apparently. And of course, you know, take, that, uh, take with that what you will, but even that just adds another layer of kind of nuance to the situation. And I think I spent way too much time talking about card games already. <clears throat> okay. Let's go back to the big screen. I think um, with Valve and Artifact in particular, well, you can't withdraw money from your Steam account though. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, for people who don't know, um, Artifact uses its Steam balance. So essentially... Whenever you uh, want to sell your card or whatever else, you're not selling it for a for money per se. You're selling it for Valve uh, currency, which theoretically speaking, you could transfer for money, but that's kind of done uh, under the table. So it's not really gambling, and Valve has always used this as an excuse as to how they're not gambling. Valve's argument to people is that with CSGO and our skins and all of this stuff, we're not actually giving people certain amounts of value. We're not actually letting them gamble. We're just having our own currency, which they can sell their cards and skins for our, our currency and possibly maybe find some ways to get money out of it. It's, it's uh, put it this way, that's essentially the only thing that has saved Valve uh, in all of the lawsuits that they've been through concerning the CSGO gambling and the skins and all of that sort of stuff is the idea that they, they essentially, it's another marketplace. It's not real money, right? If it was real money, I mean, let's be honest, it wouldn't necessarily work. Um, not legally, in the same way that it works now. The market is rather volatile, uh, especially with card games. It's like people are so, it's such a competitive market. If, you're, if Artifact was Valve's best you know, foot forward, why do people want to play the game if they think it's mediocre? when they can just go back to playing MTG, which has been around for 30, 40, whatever, how many years now. And then, of course, Hearthstone, which has been widely successful now for the past, like, five, six, eight years. Apparently, I'm being raided by a barbarian horde. <laughs> can you call in? Yeah, uh, for people who want to call in and ask any questions, just go ahead and join my Discord or, or at card. Um, you can add him in chat or you can add him in uh, or sorry, join the podcast uh, lobby and ask him or tell him rather that you'd like to ask me a question a little bit roundabout of a way to explain it. But OK, 
So I actually don't really want to talk too much about this next little point, but it's just something that I wanted to bring up kind of in a minor sense. <clears throat> so for those who don't follow Skyrim or don't follow Bethesda or don't follow games, I guess at this point, considering Skyrim's one of the best selling games ever, um, Skyrim has a series of mods called Beyond Skyrim. And just like um, the mods for Morrowind, uh, the equivalent mods for Morrowind, this is essentially essentially the idea that a mod team is trying to uh, populate the entire uh, continent within uh, within Elder Scrolls, right? The entire landmass. And so this recent one that came out just a couple of days ago, or rather announced a couple of days ago, was Morrowind, was the Morrowind portion of Beyond Skyrim for Skyrim. And as you can kind of see um, on screen, let me full screen this for you. You look like Loris Tyrell. I get that a lot. I get that a lot, Vertesi. Uh, thank you, I think. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I think this looks amazing. I love seeing classic things like this uh, come back kind of into fruition. And when I mean classic, I just mean classic feel, classic lore, classic story behind Morrowind. It's obviously Morrowind, Elder Scrolls Morrowind is probably top three, top four of uh, my favorite games of all time. Um, I, I find this whole Bethesda thing recently super interesting. That's kind of why I wanted to bring this up, even though it doesn't seem like a big uh, talking point. Hear me out. So with Bethesda's recent failure with Fallout 76 and seeing the recent kind of resurgence, really, and, and it's obviously always been there, but I mean like a re-re-resurgence of the mod scene for Skyrim. It just has me thinking, man, how much of a blunder was it that Bethesda launched Fallout 76 without modding or dedicated servers? I mean, it really, it really is like, it just shocks you, right? Like when you see the amount of work that essentially uh, people who are volunteering are willing to put in, right? This is a volunteer, you know, community project. This isn't a professional project, right? Like the one that I'm showing on screen. You see the amount of effort that Bethesda's fans are willing to put into their games because they matter so much, because they like them so much. And then you look at Fallout 76 and it's just like, it's such a hard situation to be in for fans because it's like, you want to support the mod scene. The mod scene is particularly amazing uh, with Skyrim, but at the same time, you don't want to tell Bethesda that, hey, you guys can keep selling us your tool sets and we'll keep making them better games. I feel like we need to talk about that, right? Like maybe there, ne there needs to be a video made about this potentially as well, where it's like, when is it going to get to the point to where um, the community around Bethesda stops wanting to kind of fix their games? I don't know. I feel like they're smart enough to know that as long as they provide such a tool set, they'll always have that community and audience. But with Fallout 76, that seems to me to be the biggest blunder that, you know, Indigo Gaming and I have talked about, you know, of course, ad nauseum, um, way too much. We've talked about Fallout 76. But it looks like a perfect example in this particular case. It's like, if this is what, you know, essentially um, non-professionals can accomplish, Imagine if an actual professional team took the time and effort to sit there and flesh out the entirety of the map. Of course, they don't need to because their fans will do it for them. But with Fallout 76, it really does just kind of grind everybody's gears that they'd have the audacity to just launch the game without any of that. Well, hell, now they are even punishing them for trying to fix their game. 
Um, I think it's kind of like once people are out for blood in certain regards, um, it's kind of like when a shark smells blood in the water, right, or senses blood. At that point, it just wants to frenzy, regardless of if it's like right or wrong, right? There's no moral justification. There's no like logical justification. It just sharks eat, and when they when they smell blood or sense blood, they want to eat or attack the wounded animal. In this particular case, the fan base, the consumers. Um, smell blood but in this particular case i think it's more so their own blood first and foremost right um they had to spill a little bit of their own blood to kind of get in a frenzy but now they just they want blood from bethesda <laughs> the fans i will be honest some of them will str- will essentially stop at nothing at this point they just want bethesda to feel um what they feel or felt right and and we've talked about this before. Sometimes outrage culture can be very problematic because although you need outrage in certain ways to kind of create waves, if all it does is create outrage and it's not actually pointed in any you know constructive way, then essentially you're just a giant mob. <laughs> um, although Fallout 76 was made by Battlecry Studios that was absorbed by Bethesda. Well, technically it was made by a couple other studios. That's what they claim. Bethesda claims that it was made by all of their studios, which is a meme, obviously. That's that's why people keep giving them shit. It seems like for some reason, and Indigo Gaming pointed this out on the last podcast, that they they always try to like not say what the original dev team is on Fallout 76, but they also in some cases try and claim that it was like the original team that also worked on it as well. It's just kind of like basically put it this way, it's just corporate speak. They don't want to have to admit that their non-A team worked on the game. Because, uh, I mean, obviously their A team didn't work on the game. That much is very apparent. And that's why people were pissed off. But people, I think, would be happier if Bethesda just was honest about it. But after repeated, you know, obfuscations and constantly trying to, like, downplay things and and thinking that to solve people's uh, problems, you just give them, like, small amounts of currency. Bethesda's just not understanding that when you have such a loyal fan base like they have, just offering them things doesn't make them happy. You need to prove to them with action, right? With future action that you're listening, that you're uh, paying attention to their wants, needs, and desires. It's just, um, it really is interesting to remark about every week, though. I was starting to see these kind of favorite companies, and trust me, Bethesda's been um, no stranger to criticism, but even just in the case of Blizzard, right? We're seeing these big companies, big publishers stumbling a lot and um, almost like um, stumbling without the kind of um, caution to really care too much about their initial stumbling. Because it seems like for Blizzard and Bethesda and these other large corporations, their starts aren't as important as their dollar amounts. So it's like, yes, they might get some negative feedback and, and get negatively addressed initially, but... That's been proven in the past and not necessarily mean that the game won't sell well or won't do well monetarily. And I mean, of course, there's perfect examples for this, um, many that I would especially like to bring up. And I think I'll use this as an opportunity even to to um, pivot to that. So one thing I found myself talking about um, a couple of weeks ago, of course, was the, I guess I would call it launch slash multiple launches of Atlas. Now, the Atlas MMO, for those who haven't been following the story or following the podcast, is an MMO, uh, or sorry, was advertised as an MMO by Wildcard. 
I will show everybody this, essentially the first trailer for the game and we can start from the beginning. So we're about to do a deep dive into Atlas because I had some um, opinions raised to me on Twitter concerning this and I wanted to really kind of explain my perspective since I think it's a little bit easy to assume that people are just, you know, maybe being necessarily overly negative or whatever else. And I always like to explain my perspective. So the tweet in particular that I let out recently was Atlas sucks more news at eight. And I didn't even need to sell or play the game to have seen or known that. I asked the question of when will we stop buying games from companies with such questionable histories? And why do we not expect what we get with companies like Wildcard? And uh, first off, XP Gamers, uh, Captain Shack, brought up some criticism that I want to address, which, by the way, I've met him in person. Great guy. Him and I have a friendly relationship. Uh, no ill will here. But I wanted to explain why I had such big problems with Atlas. Because once again, it becomes one of those things where it's just so easy to just pile on, just as Ark used to be. Um, but we'll take the time to to very much explain um, starting from the very beginning. It's often best to start from the very beginning of a story. Because when you start from the very beginning of a story, like literally the trailer that you see, right? This helps you understand what expectations are and what expectations are going to be satisfied. So first, the first thing you'll see here, and I, and I want you guys to please um, uh, pay close attention here. One thing you're noticing right away from this perspective, what Atlas and Wildcard are trying to show to people is the sense of scale. Would you guys agree with that, right? You see how they're showing all of these character models? We don't know if these are players, right? We have no idea if these are players. Um, they probably aren't, but again, we have no idea. But they're trying to show us the sense of scale. They showed this shot where they're on the boat, they're showing the sea, they're, they're, they're attacking dragons. Like, this looks amazing, right? Like, it looks like an M a pirate MMO. This is the first uh, kind of impression that I got. Mind you, I saw a little... I've told you guys, last time we saw the trailer, I already saw issues with the game before it even came out, and I'll show you guys how I did that. So, a couple of things to take into consideration before watching this trailer is we already know that the company behind Atlas, Wildcard, is a company that launched the game, the infamous game, Ark Survival Evolved. Now... I probably will make a video at some point explaining why that game has such a, uh, I guess, a problematic history <clears throat> and why people hate it so much. Because it, people will often ask, like, why do people hate Ark Survival so much? If it's still so played, how is it such a bad game? Um, that's a good question. But <laughs> in this particular case, right? So when Atlas is announced, we know that this is the company behind Ark Survival. So the first thing I do whenever a new company comes out and announces their game is, you know, in, in very um, uh, simple fashion, I just look up whatever their previous game was, right? So I know Wildcard has announced Atlas, and here's their trailer. Instead of watching the trailer and being like, oh my god, this is awesome, I think, okay, who is, uh, in this case, who is Wildcard, and what games have they worked on in the past, right? Um, of course, I just pulled up Ark Survival. It has 162,000 reviews. This game has sold millions of copies, right? So it's been rather successful. Now, their, their recent reviews have kind of popped up a little bit from where they were initially since the game launched. 
But if people aren't familiar with the story of Ark Survival Evolved, you can Google it, or I'll just take a quick uh, couple of seconds to explain the story. Okay, so Wildcard, this um, studio essentially out of nowhere, announces Ark Survival Evolved. I played the game in its very, very, very early stages when it first became playable. And so the game back then was essentially what you would describe as a uh, tool set. It was like a uh, sandbox with no actual tools, really, yet, to speak of, and not a whole lot of game, right? So Ark Survival Evolved, first off, was literally just like the kind of like survival experience where you can build things and attack things. Why? I don't know. Permanence? Not really, right? It's like not really a big feature of it. It's not about being massive. You have servers that are capped 150, 250, whatever, in the hundreds, right? So it's not an MMO. It's just a survival game. Um, that focuses on dinos and 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 um, and attacking either fighting with dinos like on your side or fighting against them and using the dinos to fight against other players. Now that was kind of like the initial idea. Um, Wildcard legit did not present a game initially, right? This is you can go back and watch their very early footage of the game. It played more like. Um, something that they wanted to turn into a game. So in many cases, I think Ark Survival Evolved got such a bad rep because it initially wasn't really a game, right? They didn't really have a foundation for a game. The problem with Wildcard, the reason why they have such a storied past and are particularly hated by uh, many of the fans is that they kept bringing out new content without fixing old content, right? And of course, this has been uh, demonstrated whenever they announced an expansion, which they sold at near full price before the game had even made it out of early access. Did I mention that it launched in early access and was in early access for a number of years? I want to say four years, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. So again, I'm just providing a little bit of backstory so you guys can kind of understand how I can arrive at the conclusion that I do with Atlas, right? There's other things um, that people ignore, for example. Uh... One that I can basically Google in just a couple of seconds. The company behind uh, Ark Survival or Atlas is the company Wildcard, right? But Wildcard actually isn't its own independent developer, and it hasn't been for the past year. If you pay attention here, there's been articles on this, but Snail Games, aka the company behind Dark and Light, bought Wildcard just, I don't know, less than uh, two years ago. So they haven't even been the same company. They're owned by a different company. And if people aren't familiar with who Snail Games uh, is, they're a huge Chinese company that uh, did Age of Wishu. Uh, they did, um, what's that other game? Five Street is one that I remember. I'm trying to, they have some other game that was pretty popular. Anyway, they also did Dark and Light. And for people who aren't familiar with uh, Dark and Light, it was, a, it was an MMO ages, you know, ages ago that essentially was like vaporware. An odd, completely odd story. Snail Games actually like re-releases this game idea years, years, years later. I'm talking like 15 years since the original one. Actually, it says it right here. The original one was 2008, and that was also Snail Games. So essentially, the timeline of events perfectly matches... Um, what I'm about to explain now, which is, again, this is just a couple of seconds snooping through here. I'm going to show you guys how I end up figuring this kind of shit out. 
All right, so apparently it says right here in December of 2015, that's when Snail Games was acquired. Or sorry, that's when Snail Games acquired uh, Wildcard. And then, I mean, for some reason, the merger was apparently filed in 2015, but it only was reported on later. They somehow managed to keep it quite a secret because I haven't seen a whole lot of people talking about this thing in particular. But here's what I mean. After Snail Games acquires Wildcard, the very first thing that you notice is after that, Snail Games announces a couple of games. And the, the games that they announce, um, you'll notice some oddly uh, similar qualities to the Ark Survival game. So after this, the additional titles that they start to announce, um, of course, they've, they've done the Pixar thing. I don't even want to go into that because there's just so much like nonsense to talk about um with you know those particular games in fact let's see if i can go back and find um wild card studio wild card okay so studio wild card gets acquired in 2015 um th the game that i wanted to bring up to you guys as a particular advantage or sorry as a particular point rather is dark and light now, Dark and Light released in 2017, so just two years ago, right? It's not particularly old. It doesn't have the most positive reviews. And the first thing you'll notice upon watching people play Dark and Light, um, which, by the way, you don't want to use trailers for because they're never going to show you anything realistic. But the first thing that you notice upon playing this game is that it literally has the same framework for Ark has the same menu system, the same UI, the same clunky combat, and just about everything is the same, right? So Dark and Light, for me, what it told me is that once Snail Games acquired Wildcard, they acquired their technology, and they started to use their technology to create more games. This, of course, is backed up. Dark and Light launches after they acquire uh, Studio Wildcard, and coincidentally is much like Ark Survival, right? And so it doesn't stop there. They actually create even more games. And I don't know why they, naturally speaking, of course they don't put it on their uh, games developed list here. But if people aren't familiar with some of the other blunders um, that they've made, they did a game called Pixel Arc, which has a six out of 10 also on Steam. And now speaking has basically no player base because initially, it, it, it blew up and then, like most of their games, died almost immediately. I bring this up to show to you guys that Snail Games, right? The one who's behind these Pixar games, who's behind Dark and Light, and essentially now is the one behind Atlas, already took over a Studio Wildcard. It's not the same company and sure as hell um, doesn't use the same kind of business strategies anymore. They've proven that they're willing to take... Um, the gameplay engine from Ark Survival and multiple times use it to relaunch new games. They've launched Pixark, they launched the 3D, or sorry, um, um, VR version of Ark, they have Ark Survival, they have Ark Survival um, of the Fittest, which is the BR version, they have the expansion that they also uh, launched, but to be fair, Studio Wildcard launched that, and then Alice, right? So now you're hearing all the backstory, you're starting to understand why Whenever I watched this trailer, I watched it with uh, skeptical hippo eyes.
essentially, right? The, the, these are my skeptical hippo eyes. It's not because I'm some next level genius. I'm just picking up the pieces, right? I'm just following the story. Now, when you watch this trailer, right? I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but this is how I work. We're, we're, we jump ahead to the trailer. Now, we know already not to necessarily trust trailers because once again, if you take the time to go and watch Dark and Light trailer, watch their trailer and tell me if it looks anything like the game became. Look at this. They're showing the sense of scale. You're climbing like, look at this giant dragons just flying like seamlessly around. Do you guys notice gameplay anywhere? Does it say gameplay? Does it say gameplay engine anywhere? No, th these are obviously cinematics, right? Like we have enough brain power to know that this is a cinematic. This is not new to either of those companies. They're used to essentially selling you a bill of goods that doesn't fit whatever it actually is. They're pretty good at it, too. I mean, look at Atlas. It managed to get the kind of audience it got, even with all of the previous history that we've already mentioned. Now, when you watch this trailer, the first thing you'll notice, if you've ever played an ARC game, if you've ever played Dark and Light, and if you ever played any of the other 16 billion iterations, you'll notice that they play very similar to each other. That's because they all use the Unreal Engine, and they use... Uh, sorry. Is it, is it Cry or, or the Unreal on ARC? I think it's Unreal, but yeah, it's Unreal 4. Sorry, I always get Unreal 4 and CryEngine sometimes mixed up, and I know I shouldn't because they're not really the same. But anyway, Unreal issues, right? <laughs> Pun intended. But when you watch the way people move here, again, for people who've played Ark Survival, please tell me that you can't tell that it looks just as clunky as it was before. Notice the momentum shift here. Like, these are little things that you can pick up for if you just take the time to look if you watch this character here right he's running forward and watch how he moves back here there's no momentum instantly switches backwards this is the biggest issue why when you play art games everything feels so fucking clunky <laughs> it's because every time you move you feel like you feel like old school gears of war uh with the unreal 3 engine like you're running around with like 600 pounds attached to you these are things that you can already see when you watch the game uh, the, the sorry the, the the footage for the game they try their best to make it look as sexy as they possibly can but they can't hide the engine right L if you notice that here look at the jump animation here look at how kind of delayed it is and how clunky it looks again these are all aspects that most players like myself who played Ark Survival are quite familiar with right and so that was like the initial trailer that got everybody like really hyped right and then the game launched And obviously, it's had, you know, 18,000 or so reviews, and 32% of them have been positive. So it's been a mostly negative game. And so when I remarked about that, I had a couple of people kind of respond saying that um, they disagreed. And so Captain Shaq, uh, also from XP Gamers, go watch his content if you haven't already, if you're into space engineers and any of that space sim kind of stuff. He says that I don't agree. I've been playing Atlas for a few days. It offers a bit of gameplay. No other current survival game has. The building, customizing, provisioning of sailing ships and ocean to actually sail and explore. So the point that he brings up here is a good one. There isn't a whole lot of games like this on the market, and there's certainly not a whole lot of good ones on the market. But the reason why I don't like when people are just first and foremost uh, focused on kind of how their enjoyment versus like uh, their feelings were after a particular uh, situation 
is it ignores a lot of important context. For example, the thing that I mentioned here is although Atlas does offer unique features in certain regards, one of my biggest issues with the game is that it 100% false advertised. In the very first trailer they showcase to you, they say that the game can get up to 40,000 players, right? It's an MMO. It can, it's massive. It can get to 40,000 players. Everyone's like, wow, this game is going to have 40,000 concurrent players. Actually, it's not how it works. There's a shard system. Surprise. Just like there was an arc. It's literally the same kind of concept except a little bit more expanded. Where you have these, um, I guess if you want to call them hubs, that you can kind of connect to and transfer your character to. So it almost works as like almost like individual servers to some extent. More so like individual servers than, than the same server. But this isn't the same as being a massive multiplayer online game, as many of you know. Just because you have the ability to link over to some other kind of server isn't 40,000 concurrent players massive multiplayer online game. It's false advertisement. And they advertise it that way, and then all of a sudden, you don't really see it mentioned anywhere. So, they mention it, of course, in their very first, like, initial thing. We'll host up to 40,000 players exploring the same globe simultaneously. So, this is masterfully put. They're, they're so good at putting this kind of stuff. But they essentially, they, first and foremost, they describe it as a massively multiplayer first person, or f- sorry, first and third person fantasy pirate adventure. And says that it hosts up to 40,000 players. Exploring the same globe concurrently. <laughs> uh, Quintel says it can get 30,000 concurrent players per server if every shard block thingy is 100% full somehow. Oh, and also if you could actually play amongst the shards. You can't, which is why I don't like and I'm feverishly against anytime a company says that, that, that their game is a massive multiplayer online game. I will scrutinize them heavily because I love MMOs and I have spent a lot of time uh, in MMOs. So I don't want people to falsely advertise MMOs. This is a false advertisement. This is like, explain to you guys what 40,000 concurrent players is. Again, Google will help us out here. Somebody will essentially take the time to explain to you what it actually means. Okay. So this guy asked the simple question. If the servers, if the ARC servers can't even hold 100 players stably, how is this thing going to hold 40,000? The first comment, it's just PR fluff. It's essentially a server supports up to 100 or however many players they've gotten to now, and a collection of server combined together creates a cluster, which is not the same thing at all. A cluster of shards or phases is not the same thing as a massive multiplayer online game. It's just not the same thing. You can't get what's deemed to be a massive amount of players on a single shard. You can't. Because, look, I'm not the most, like, um, how do you say it? You, like, I'm not the most technical when I speak. I'm not so focused on, like, what the exact technical terms are, right? With massive multiplayer online game, like we've talked about this so many times, but it's one of those things that wasn't really like defined effectively. But one thing that is defined is the word massively. And we can argue what massively means, but I don't know about you guys. I've always thought massively to mean thousands of players, right? 
And to be fair, that that is kind of vouched for when you look at people like Raph Koster, Richard Garriott, and other people who were involved in the creation of MMOs. They typically describe it as like thousands of players concurrently, right? Again, there's no specific amount. It's never like a thousand and one, thousand and two. So half the time we end up having these semantical discussions as to like what's considered an MMO. I think you and I though can can fairly assume here that a hundred players on a server probably isn't what we would consider to be massively multiplayer online. Wouldn't you guys say that that's pretty fair? So they literally false advertised. And yet people are telling me, yeah, but the game is fun. It, even if it is fun, I can't play the game off of principle. There's too much history surrounding the game. And this is the main concept that I wanted to explain to people. You don't just judge games based on their merits alone, which, by the way, if you judged Atlas on that, it would fall short. It already has, right? It's already fallen short on its merit, like on its gameplay merit. It clearly, uh, in the eyes of the public, is not so great, right? But again, it still has a player base. How can these games do so poorly, according to the reviews and critics, and still do so well? This is a question I'm, I've been agonizing over, if you can't tell. Because, in my opinion, this needs to stop. How are these games that do so poorly have such poor history surrounding them? Why do we keep buying these games? I'm sorry, guys. You did not need to purchase Atlas to know it was a shit game. You didn't. I proved that myself. I never purchased the game. I didn't have to. <laughs> I've been watching it. I've been watching Studio Wildcard with Ark now for, you know, like... How many years is it since they first went into, um, let's see when they first went into early access. You can see how long I've been following the game now. Okay, when they first went into early access, it was in 2015. I mean, the game's been around for four years now. Only a year ago launched an actual, like a full actual release. Well, technically speaking, a little bit over a year now, um, to, to be fair. They've been around, there's enough negative history around to kind of be wary to pre-order or willing to purchase the game at launch. Now, there's even more drama that goes with Atlas. They've even had people in the past, um, for example, I, I don't know if I linked it here, but there was a server host company that came out and issued apologies to people because they did not expect Atlas to be as unfinished as it was, right? And so the main point that I want to stress to everybody is that, look, we purchased ARK, we fucked up already, okay? It's okay. As consumers, we make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. I purchased ARK, right? Just as much as many of you did, right? But, doesn't mean we have to purchase Atlas, because we can use ARK, and Pixel ARK, and fucking 4D, 5D ARK, and this ARK, and, and the fucking expansion ARK. There's so many signs being acquired by Snell Games, releasing copy cutter games already before Atlas came out. We already knew that they've done this in the past, right? So once again, it's very hard for a company not to keep doing the same thing if they don't think there's enough financial reason not to keep doing the same thing. So if you want to ask why uh, <laughs> Grape Shot Games, that's brilliant, dude. These guys are so smart. They got a complete other company name now amongst Snail Games to run their games. So they have different branding. Like, the okay, sorry. I come from a business background, guys. I come from a sales background. I've been doing uh, construction sales since I was like 
19 or whatever else. Uh, I'm 25 now, so I did it for, you know, six to seven years. I worked in construction and specifically six to five years or five to six years, I sold things, right? And so I essentially, I'm pretty good at knowing when something's a marketing tactic. And when you see different publisher, different developer, although it's the same company, right? And you're seeing all of these empty promises that are not delivered on, they're trying to shed their previous uh, <laughs> a history. And it's, it's just crazy. We cannot let them get away with this. This is not Grape Shot Games. This is the same company that did uh, Survival Evolved, right? This is the same company. Snail Games, we already looked at them. They did Dark and Light, right? Like, <laughs> it's just crazy that we let people get away with this kind of shit. Uh, same rapist, new coat. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's like it really does seem that way. Now, there, so we've talked about objective reasons with gameplay not to really want to play such a game, Atlas, right? I'm not really going to get too much into that because, as I said, I haven't played the game significantly enough to feel adequate and confident to sit here and, and detail to you guys point by point what I believe to be wrong with the game from a design perspective. But the beauty of um, context and history and um, also trusting and paying attention to what developers and companies are involved in certain games, we can already know shit smelled a little bit fishy, right? When we first saw those initial trailers, the first thing I said to you guys I remember was I don't think the game's going to run that well. And second off, I'm really surprised if they'll be able to get 40,000 players concurrently, to which both they were unable to do, and yet still consider themselves an MMO. I mean, if it seems like I'm piling on, it's because I am. I'm just trying to reach the point with you guys where I don't have to tell you not to pre-order things. I, I hate being that person. I don't want to, like, judge or constantly be in your pocket telling you which consumer decisions to make. I have my own decisions to worry about, right? But you guys can educate yourselves, right? You can look at the, the history. You can look at the previous iterations. You can look at um, the, the, the signs on the wall, right? The, the, uh, the, the clues. It doesn't always take forking over $60 or forking over $50 or a pre-order or trying to play it at live to understand that these games just aren't necessarily good, right? We need to start holding these developers and 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 more specifically in this case, in this case, uh, sorry, in this case, the publishers. We need to hold them accountable. To be honest, around a few hundred players is pretty okay for an MMO, is it? Especially if you design it around that. No, it's not an MMO. A few hundred players, by any original definition, is not considered massively. So, essentially, if they want to, uh, uh, I guess, avoid the scrutiny of being judged like an MMO, don't call yourself an MMO. <laughs> it's simple. If you don't want to be scrutinized like an MMO, don't call yourself a massive multiplayer online game. Don't do it. It's just a multiplayer game at that point. I mean, there's shooters out there that have 100 players in them. Like, really? Like, shit, MAG back in the day on PS4 allowed up to, like, 90 or 100-something players? Is that an MMO as well? You know, are, are games that allow period for just 100 players, is that the bar now for MMOs? I'm sorry. My, my bar 
is where it was originally set, which is where people like Richard Garriott and Raph Koster came up with the term MMO and came up with the term MMORPG, right? And back then, it was never meant to, to describe hundreds of players. It, it's just... There's uh, Mag. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Mag's a little bit of a, a classic reference. Cutthroat Granny, that's the question that needs to be answered. I'm not saying that I'm the one to answer that question. I don't have all the answers, Sway. Is Luden's here today? I don't know if anyone's going to get my, my uh, memes, my Kanye memes, but I can't necessarily answer that question for you. Now, if you ask me the question, I can give you my opinion, but I don't speak for the law council of MMO players. Like I, I don't have any authority in that particular way. I more so try and trust in what the original founders of the genre believe to be uh, the concept of what's considered massive multiplayer online. It's just that in this particular case, and you've seen it with other games like Destiny and, and these other sorts of games, they will call their games massive multiplayer online games essentially as marketing. To be like, hey guys, we're an MMO. No, you're a multiplayer game with a lobby. Like, that's not an MMO. A multiplayer game with a lobby or, or 16 billion shards combined together to equal 40,000 players or 100,000 players, that's not an MMO. Like, how is that any different than playing Counter-Strike with, with custom lobbies and then saying this is an MMO? Because theoretically speaking, I can go from this custom lobby to this custom lobby and play with these players. So it's an MMO, right? According to Atlas and according to Wildcard, that's an MMO. It's simultaneously, right? We're all playing the same game simultaneously. It's not the same thing, right? Come on. We know it's not the same thing. Um, what is an MMO? I mean, again, that's a, that's a question that's not so easy to answer because it depends ultimately on, on who you ask. But <coughs> if we ask uh, the internet, we can find that out. So, let's see if I can find kind of like the easiest place to start here for you guys. Um, technical aspect. Okay. So, in a typical MUD, they were limited to 64 and 250 players. A, a MUD, if people don't recognize the name, multi-user dungeon. This is the earliest form of MMO. Well, besides... Tabletop. <laughs> uh, tabletop, then, or pen and paper, tabletop, typical mud, uh, then maybe 2D, 3D graphical mud, followed by MMOs, right? That's kind of like how the timeline essentially works. They were limited early on. But actually, if you, if you look at like some of the other points that they mention here, for example, they talk about typical servers can handle around 10,000 to 12,000 players. That's relatively uh, accurate. Concurrent players on a given popular server are never going to rise above multiple thousands, typically speaking, unless they have a mega server like Eve. On it actually mentions the Eve Online here perfectly, which could have, theoretically speaking, 60,000 simultaneous players. Now, the reason why we have to at least introduce some sort of metric to describe what is considered an MMO, right, versus what's not considered an, M an, an MMO, is that the earliest form of MMO, multi-user dungeon, had up to 64 to 256 uh, player connections. By the way, MUDs existed in the early 90s, or sorry, mid to early to late 90s, MUDs existed. And then, of course, late 90s, you saw the rise of um, games like EverQuest and 99, of course, which was, you know, uh, essentially the first, you know, commercial 3D MMO 
that existed before that it was like meridian was the first graphical mud if i remember correctly meridian 59 um point being is right now the bar for a mud was 64 to 256 players right and that was because it had a limit imposed as it says by the underlying operating system now in today's current day and age if i have a game that has a hundred person server cap that has less players than a mud used to have in the 90s i don't know if i can really call it a massive multiplayer online game it's probably more like a mud <laughs> i mean and we're talking about player counts right uh, obviously we're not talking about design aspects here we're talking about player counts it's just that when I try and explain this to people, the, the main concept I bring up is it's not that it has to be the past. It's that it, theoretically speaking, should be better than the past. And when newer games are masquerading as MMOs but have less players than the previous generation of game, a MUD, I don't know how you can rationally explain them to be massive multiplayer online games. Because by their definition, it isn't. Now... I want to have a podcast, maybe even like a panel sometime where I can get Raph Coster, um, Brad McQuaid, a couple, uh, Richard Garriott, maybe even Mark Jacobs. If I could get all four of those guys on a panel, I'll ask them these questions. What do you consider to be a massive multiplayer online game? I'll ask the guy who essentially created the name, right? And I'll ask the guys who created the first MUDs and MMOs, period. Uh, graphical uh, MMOs, I should say. And maybe we'll see kind of better yet what their answer is. But I'm pretty confident, as most people have said to me, and I've seen them say in the past, typically the answer is multiple thousands of players, right? That's the simplest way to describe it. Now, the main uh, point I think that's more important than the amount of players is concurrently, right? Concurrently is probably the most important aspect of what's considered a multi or massive multiplayer on game online game permanence and how many players are playing at the same time right does the game have a permanent quality to it is it a virtual world right an emulated world or or a, a, a created world and are those players playing excuse me simultaneously or concurrently simultaneous apparently has been memed now so we can't even use the terminology simultaneous anymore because that essentially means they could be playing the same game in different lobbies which is obviously not what an mmo is at all so i don't know it the, i hate having these technical discussions about terminology because i have my opinion and as you see the very first thing that's mentioned and this is what i've seen by the way in literature so don't Please don't hit me with the, but that's Wikipedia argument. I've read books on this as well. I can, I can go get a book right now um, that was written by um, Richard Bartle, which, you know, obviously a genius of a guy had a degree in AI, or sorry, a PhD in AI, one of the first um, guys to create an MMO, but also very, um, everyone remembers the Bartle test. So I'm, I'm not even going to mention him. Richard Bartle has a, a storied history. Um, there's also been a couple other books that talk about this sort of stuff. But even in the very in, in beginning of the premise, it says large number of players. Fair enough, right? That's pretty obscure. What does large number of players mean? But then they always say this too. Uh, typically from hundreds to thousands on the same server. And I don't know why they didn't put the um, citation here because there actually is a, a, a citation. Oh, it is right here. 
No, this this is not the citation that they need. The the I think more appropriate one is like um if you see kind of Richard's like definition of what's considered massive. But then again, to be fair, Richard talks a lot more about virtual worlds, which aren't necessarily the same. See, he has a book here that talks about virtual worlds, but here's one that he talks about MMOs. I actually, you know what? I, I want to get this book. I haven't seen this one before. MMO from the inside out, history design. I'll save this one because I'm curious if he even talks about uh, how many um, how many players in particular. By the way, he probably doesn't because most people don't want to be the person that has to describe how many players is considered massive because it's just like, it's arbitrary. Like who says I can decide what's considered massive multiplayer online? What about MMORTS? They have a, a, see, that's where it gets a little bit different. When you start to create other versions of MMOs, it gets pretty confusing because, for example, an MMO FPS is like, it's very difficult because it's like, it can't realistically have more than a couple hundred players because of its tech limitations. So maybe like MUD, we should just call it something different. But then again, that increases the amount of bureaucracy that exists. And people don't like having to name all of these different names and whatever else. It's like, it's, it seems arbitrary. Like, I'm totally with you guys that if it seems arbitrary, it probably is. But my point is, is that we have to know when somebody's correctly advertising that they have an MMO and when they aren't so we can hold them accountable. So will Anthem not be an, an Anthem is not going to be an MMO. It's going to be a lobby game. Thousand percent. It's going to be a lobby game. And I'm not saying that because I've played it. They've asked me to play it. I won't play it. I don't really have any interest in playing it. Um, but it will definitely be lobby-based. Like, 1,000% will be lobby-based. What about the largest Minecraft servers that have 20,000 players? If they have 20,000 players concurrently, in my book, they're a massive multiplayer online game. Also, if they have permanence as well, permanence and a, a large amount of players, that's an MMO to me. It's a simple co-op. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, obviously. We'll see once it uh, releases. But from what I've seen, it's a lobby-based game. I feel like um, some of these technical discussions, though, sometimes it, they don't necessarily make my, my, um, my point as obvious. But we can basically, to, to go back to Atlas, we, we need to know when people advertise when something is a certain thing and when it isn't a certain thing. Because ultimately speaking, we don't want these companies to keep advertising their games as MMOs while not being MMOs. Because it's just misleading first and foremost, right? It's misleading. And it also, it, 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 unfortunately, it's good marketing, right? It's good marketing. It's good marketing for them to say that they can have all of this stuff. Because that's the big selling point. In fact, a majority of my friends, guys who are close to me, were even telling me about, oh my God, 40,000 simultaneous players? How are they going to do it? It's in the same world? Like, what? Oh, that's what they meant by that. It's pretty good. These guys are damn good at misleading you. And so that's why I don't hold it against anybody who got misled by them. But what I do hold, it, hold against people is people who already knew that this was wildcard and you still bought the damn game. Again, consumers, 
including me, we make mistakes, right? We buy games are bad. We swear off developers and publishers. But we have to make sure to, to put our money where our mouth is. And if we thought, for example, Ark Survival wasn't such a good game, there's no incentive to trust that the next game will be better. Let me, let me uh, repeat that. When all we know in the past is a history of what-ifs and maybes and false promises and tons of issues, if that's the primary past that we know of, right, from this company, and we also know that they've now been acquired by a Chinese company who's already reused assets and flipped assets since acquiring the company, there's too much context, too much backstory here to let us keep making the same mistakes. That's all I'm just trying to say. Atlas was just uh, bless online all over again. Yeah, it's true. And, and it's like, if I seem passionate about this, it's because I am, right? I'm just tired of us buying these damn games, okay? I'm tired of it, man. Because I'm tired of us supporting these horrible publishers and these horrible developers. Why is it that whenever I type in Atlas Steam Charts... No, not Atlas Reactor. We know that nobody's playing that. <clears throat> Check this out. All-time peak, 58... Actually, can we do all here? All-time peak, 58,000 players. Playing 37 minutes ago. Concurrently, 35,000 players are, are playing this damn game. Why? Why? Can someone explain to me why? Okay, so... It's, it's liked by people who liked ARK. Okay, I guess if you liked ARK, and, and, you know, Stockholm Syndrome and all, at that point, you're probably going to like Atlas ARK or whatever version of ARK. This right here, though, when you look at the good reviews and you nearly see that it's all people saying that they liked ARK and they also like this game, what you start to realize is that the people who keep making these bad purchasing decisions are the ones that are sunk cost. They've already invested too much time into the previous games and enjoyed it in some sort of way, whatever, whatever way they might be, for them to ever say, you know what, I'm going to evaluate this one. And Taj, you, you bring up a good point here. Because the alternative to not buying those games is not playing anything at all. So for some people, it becomes at least a shadow of what we want. And while I agree with that as being like probably largely the case, I want to be the first person here to say that that is a horrible, horrible way to get what you want. It's a horrible way to get what you want. Let me explain. So let's say I've kidnapped you, right? <clears throat> Hear me out. I'll explain my analogy. Let's say I kidnap you and I give you just like small amounts of food. Over time, this concept such as uh, Stockholm Syndrome will start to surface which is that you will start to see me as your ally or friend or in a more positive way because throughout the trauma and kidnap process, you begin to like me because I feed you and keep you alive. In this case, these players who are so desperate to play anything, they go into a game, they get roped in by people like um, a Wildcard Studio, and then once they're playing the game, it becomes Stockholm Syndrome. They see no other thing to play. There's no other option. So you just keep playing the same thing. Except 
Nobody's putting a gun to your head, right? I didn't actually kidnap any of you. Neither did they. You're playing games that you know to be shit or questionable because there's no, there's quote unquote, no other option. But there always is another option. And the other option is don't play these shit games. If you want to say, but what other games would I play? I can't tell you what games to play yourself. If your argument is that Atlas is such a great game that there's nothing to play just like that game, my response to you would be, how is it really any different than Sea of Thieves, for example? It's not a whole lot different. Is it really one-to-one better? I don't know. It's not an argument that I would necessarily make. Now, if your argument is that you want more MMOs to play, well, why would you play Atlas, period? It's not an MMO. If your argument is that you want to play other survival games, there's better survival games out there on the market. In fact, I can't believe I'm saying this, but even at this point, DayZ seems to be a better option than Atlas. And I know that's weird to see because it's been such a long time that DayZ has been floundering. But um, it's becoming Stockholm Syndrome with people. And it gets very scary to see people feverishly defend companies that profit off of them and profit off of taking advantage of them. My biggest thing is, is like, if you can look at a company and, okay, let me, let me rephrase this. As you guys know with me, I don't typically make very moral or ethical arguments, right? They're typically not really my style, right? I prefer to like carefully explain logically why I would or wouldn't do something. Now, with the case of a company like um, Wildcard or a game like Atlas, there's no way that I can objectively, in any conceivable way, make an argument that the game is so good that I should be willing to adhere or, or sorry, um, allow myself to be abused, right? To be put through the abuse to play the game. There's no conceivable objective argument that the game is worse, or sorry, worth all of that other bad shit we've already mentioned, right? If it was, we'd be having a different discussion, a completely different discussion. Let's say this game was as good as the best game this year. That's a more interesting discussion, right? Because there's a lot of nuance there. It is kind of strange sometimes when good companies, or sorry, bad companies, bad, you know, depending on what your definition of bad is, make good games. It's happened to me before where I'm playing a game and I'm like, damn it, why do I like this game? This company, by all, you know, measures is not necessarily the best company. But once again, when something's fun, you can't really deny that something is just fun. But in the case of Atlas, I'm not really, con- I'm not really convinced it's so fun. It's just that it's the sunk cost fallacy and it's the no other alternative uh, fallacy. So it's like you, you think uh, recency bias, I should say. Um, because it's the most recent game and it's got all the new bells and whistles, it's the one that I have to play. No, it isn't. It isn't. (laughs) And this is such a hard discussion to have because ultimately people will always want to ask me, okay, well then what do I play otherwise? Sorry, I can't tell you what to do with your life. Like, I can offer you games that I like. I can give you my perspective. But I can't tell you without a shadow of a doubt what is the best game for you to play given your specific conditions. I don't know, right? Ultimately, I don't know. But point being... If more people are willing to subject themselves to games like Atlas and companies like Wildcard, because this is Wildcard, don't let them fool you into thinking it's Grape Shot Games or whatever the hell. 
This is Wildcard. This is Snail Games, right? This is that company. Supporting bad businesses and shady businesses, all it does is increase the amount of shadiness and increase the amount of bad decisions. If only there was an example of this. Wait a minute. Maybe over the past hour, we use an example. Did you guys think of one? Oh, wait. Wildcard. They've already done this before. They've already released like 16 versions of their game that are obviously um, not, you know, not so great. So let me see if I can... I don't even know if it, what, what developer they have it under whenever they did Pixark. Like, what developer do they have it under? Huh. Let me guess. There's a different company that runs that one? Let's see. Okay, so this one is for real Snow Games. Okay. So, we, we already knew... Okay, let me, let me rephrase this. So if you want to ask, well, I don't care. I don't care about all that stuff you mentioned. I don't care about any moral or ethical arguments. I don't care about anything. All I want to do is play the game that I want to play and have fun. Let's say that that's your argument. By the way, this is an argument that's mentioned to me so many times. And I will show you why that argument is so, so debunked. It's such a horrible argument to make. Okay. So we look at like the the t the timeline of events here. Let's let's see. Wild card. Um actually um There's an article in particular that I'm trying to find here. It's one where they already did the um research for me. Wild card massively atlas. Uh okay. Hmm. I got to find this uh, article because they uh they already had all the research for me. All right, I'll just go to their normal page. This is massively OP by the way for those who don't know. This is where I get a lot of MMO news from. Okay, where's top stories? Popular threads. Um Man, I got to find this. Actually, I could just probably search it in here. It would take me work to actually have to go in and pull up all of the things that I want to pull up. So instead, I'm just hoping to find the article. Uh, let's see. Atlas struggle, blah, blah. Okay. Here we go. I think this is it. Mm, maybe not. They need to get better with their uh, titles here. Because I, I swear. Um, damn it. This is going to drive me crazy now that I can't find this. To explain what I'm looking for, uh, they took the time to essentially outline what games they've worked on in the past. Uh, previous kind of shady history. And then also essentially address some of the things that have come up with the recent Atlas game. Anyway, I'm not going to waste any more time looking for that. I'll have to find it some other time. But uh, to explain what I'm trying to say here. So 
Let's say your opinion or your perspective is, I don't care about the news. I don't care about content creators who want to be all moralistic and want to virtue signal. I just play games because I just want to have fun. So screw it if Wildcard does all these things. I just want to play what the game because it's fun. All right, let's say that's your argument. So essentially what happens with those kinds of players, they get exploited heavily. In fact, um, sorry, but you're a mark. You're what's called a mark. Whenever a developer, a publisher, or even just anybody who sells anything looks at a person like you who's willing to ignore, ignore all context, willing to ignore any of the history surrounding anything, and ultimately just wants to enjoy yourself with no other conceptions or, or like um, no other thought that goes into it, you're a mark. You, you make a really easy transaction because when people look at you, they know you're not thinking about the previous history of the car. It's like the used car salesman. You don't want the car fox or the car fax or whatever they call it. Like those damn commercials have messed me up with a car fox. But um, you don't you don't need the car fox or the car fax, right? You're just playing a game, man. You're just having a good time. You don't need to look at all that history. But wait a minute. Let's say they released Ark Survival, and that's your approach to it. Okay. So after Ark Survival come out or came out in 2015 or came out into early access. Let's say that's the time that you chose to choose to say that argument. Oh, just play it for fun. Like, who cares about all of the other history? You ignore all of that other stuff. So what does a company like Wildcard then do after that? Well, they release an expansion in early access. Why not? <laughs> I mean, everyone's buying our half-finished, like, you know, shit game anyway. Why not just charge them an expansion before we've even gotten out of early access? You know, come on, like... A guy responds to him, come on, no, like, no one's going to buy an expansion in a pre-launch game. Come on, John. Like, we can't sell our audience that. Can we? Hmm. Maybe we can. Maybe we can. Well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They'll give us negative reviews, okay. Um, will we get more money than we'll get negative publicity? AKA make more money than we lose money? Huh. Maybe. You know, you know what? Let's launch an expansion in early access. Met with all of this constant uh, you know, negative press and all of this background and whatever else, people are hating it. How could you launch an expansion in early access? All of these things, right? Everyone's saying all of these. How could it happen? Because of gullible fans, right? Because of gullible consumers. So then let's say after that point, you make the same argument. Eh, I don't care. Like survival evolved, expansion, pre-early access, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm still having fun playing the game and that's all that matters. Okay. And then they sell you Pixark, right? Then they sell you a game like Pixark. Or actually, no, let's even go uh, before that. Then they get, after getting acquired, then they sell you a re another reskin of Ark. Uh, dark and light. So here's another reskin of basically the same engine, the same uh, UI, the same combat system. Again, feel free to play or even just read the reviews to see if I'm totally making this up out my ass. Literally, the first things that you see is exploiters, bugs all over the place. It's snail, ga uh, snail games. It's a cash grab by snail games. It's ripped from Ark, wildcard oversight, like asset flip. All of these th things that are reviewers are saying. People who've put thousands of hours into the game are saying this. So don't just listen to my opinion, right? 
But then again, to ask the question, how do people buy the game know that, uh, knowing that this is the case? Or all of those negative things we mentioned in the past, why are they still buying the game? Because they're making the same argument that we mentioned in the very beginning, which is that, well, I don't care about anything else except playing my good old game. You will allow them to keep doing this to you by having that mentality. If you want to close your ears and go la, 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 anytime anything bad happens from a developer or a publisher that you support, you are the problem. You are part of the problem. So after Dark and Light comes out, another reskin, another version of Ark essentially happens. Then they're just like, you know what? Just make a pixel version of it. Like, well, why not? Like, look at that. You just make a pixel version of Ark. So it's like the same kind of concept, except now we have like the Minecraft way, right? Like, so boom, now we got like another kind of version of our game out there, right? And, and so, you know, of course, people are going to complain. Uh, not enough progression. It's thrown together poorly. Um, this is just like Ark, somebody said, which obviously it is. It's PixArk, right? But that's not enough for people, right? They, they still want to buy more art games for, for some reason. And so then they're just like, why not make Ark Park, you know, the VR game, a VR game for another unfinished game, which strangely enough, why doesn't this game have good reviews either? How come none of these games have good reviews? I'm so confused. Clearly people are just being mean. Like, you know, you're just being unreasonable. These aren't bad games. There, there's no storied past here, right? Um, look. Arc Park comes out. I'll buy my VR headset. Who cares what your opinion is of all this history and story and all that? I don't care about none of that. I'm going to keep playing my game. Right? Then they come out with Atlas. Which has, strangely enough, negative reception. Strangely enough, many of the same complaints. Reskin. Unoptimized. Complete trash. Garbage. Waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> do you get my point yet am i making a point here the idea is that although on the surface you can respond with the idea of like guys i'm just playing games i'm just an average joe i don't care about all of the other history if i'm having a good time just let me enjoy my good time no you are part of the problem because you keep allowing these companies to resell you the same damn game six times <laughs> So your whole laissez-faire kind of, oh, it's just whatever kind of approach, you know, if you don't like it, don't buy it. It's like, yeah, but the people who are, you know, liking the game or whatever else, after all of these constant reskins and, and, and constant drama, you are the problem. You're why we keep getting this bullcrap. You're why we keep getting these crappy games, right? They will keep selling you Okay, I'll, I'll put this in another simple analogy, and I think this is a good way to end this discussion. Right now, let's say I just murdered a person, right? All right, let's make it a little bit more kind of less exaggerative. Let's say I just stole something from a store, right? And the cops look at me funny the second time I come into the store because they're like, oh, he stole something last time he was in the store. But you know what? Hey, come on, like... We can't really like pay attention to context here. He probably won't do anything bad again. There's no reason for us to suspect him this time, right? I mean, he did it in the past, but that's the past, right? So it doesn't have to be the same in the future. And then I steal something again, right? And now that person's 
now he feels like a fool. The cop in that scenario feels like a fool because they're just like, man, like he already sold, he already like stole something. I penalized him and he came back in. I thought he would change and he did the same thing again. He keeps stealing stuff. Why does he keep stealing stuff? Maybe because I'm a thief, <laughs> right? And in this case, maybe because Wildcard's a shit company. Maybe that's why they keep doing it. There doesn't need to be any other uh, type of reasoning, right? Maybe they just suck. Maybe they're just a bad company that is part of the problem. <laughs> it looks pretty solid. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, somebody said something along the lines of uh, earlier, said no fun allowed. I think you're memeing, man. It's, it's, it's nothing about, um, it's nothing about uh, you not being able to have fun. What I'm saying is that your fun can be somebody else's demise. And what I mean is it's like the only way bad companies or companies that are seen as bad are allowed to continue to operate is because people keep giving them money. That's the simplest solution. If you want to ask me the question, um, Nerd Slayer, why does Snail Games keep remaking art games? Because people keep buying them. Why does Tom Howard... Tom Howard. Why does Todd Howard... Why does Todd Howard keep selling Skyrim? As people keep buying Skyrim. So don't be mad at the publishers or developers. Actually, I take that back. Be mad at them, but be more mad at the people who keep buying the damn games. Somebody earlier in chat said it. Sorry, I couldn't get to your uh, point. But they said something along the lines of, you as a consumer are part of the problem. Your money is what creates the issue. And I know it's a lot of, um, put it this way, for a consumer, surprisingly, we have a lot of purchasing power, right? We have a lot of power with our money. Our money obviously funds these companies, but it also tells them that they will continue to get customers like us if they continue to do the same kind of stuff. So whenever a company is continuing to do bad business practices by continuing to buy those games, even if we disagree with those business practices, we are supporting those business practices, right? Perfect example, Electronic Arts and nearly all of their sport games, especially nowadays, have like insane amounts of microtransactions, right? Why? Why do they have so many microtransactions? This isn't fair. Because people are buying it and they keep using it, right? Like they're, they're purchasing their new FIFA team player cards or whatever the hell else. If you ever wonder why bad business practices or unfair things or or whatever else, you know, type of adjective you want to use, why they exist, it's because somebody's still giving them money, right? You're still supporting them. All right. I got off my um high horse, if you want to call it that, my journalism high horse. It's just like having been a player myself who's gone through all of this, I think that's why the story is so personal to me because it's like I've kept trusting developers. I've kept trusting companies and been, you know, shown to be essentially idiotic when they keep continuing to make the bad decisions. And then you realize you're looking around in the room. Nobody's finessing you. You're finessing yourself. So it's you're not being tricked by Atlas, right? You're tricking yourself because the signs are there, right? The history is there. All the clues are there. We don't have to keep purchasing it and giving them money. 
we already have all of the clues and all of the previous history we need, right? All right. <laughs> no more talking about Atlas. Uh, that was a very long discussion about it. But I just, um, I wanted to stress to everybody that no, you don't need to purchase games. And no, you don't need to try and sell them to people and market them to people in order to know that they're bad games. So can these content creators, maybe these other content creators, can you get a little bit of a backbone and stop supporting these shit companies and these shit games? Because all you're doing is selling more people shit games and allowing more people to be exploited by more shit companies. But, uh, fuck, I mean, that's a whole discussion for another time. <laughs> no more rant in that specific regard. I want to move ahead uh, to the MMOs on the go segment because we ranted a little bit too much today for current gaming news. And we didn't have too much regular gaming news to really talk about that I was interested in. So we'll talk some more about MMOs. And uh, th there's been some interesting rumors and maybe, dare I say, a mystery concerning uh, a possible new MMO in the works by a company none other than Riot Games. And um, let me check some of my messages quickly. Uh, sorry, I was reading some of the messages I had here. Okay. So with Riot Games, there's been rumors a little bit of rumors, I should say, over the couple of years, the last couple of years, they've had developers come out and say, what do you guys think of an MMO? Mark Merrill said that. Point being, League of Legends, the top three most popular game in the world, top four maybe now, and obviously one of the biggest MOBAs ever, Riot Games, the company behind them, Essentially, this guy here, uh, Admiral Galius or Galius Rax, I appreciate the amount of time and effort this essentially detective has put in because he's built his case here. And I'll just go ahead and read it uh, word for word so I don't do it any... Uh, so I do it justice, I guess I would say. This thread is the result of a comment somebody made to me in another thread. Now, I normally do not pay much attention to Riot Games, but somebody told me they might be making an MMO entitled... Legends of Runeterra, so I decided to do some digging. The digging he does, the first point, or uh, I guess I would say a um, little bit of um, a clue, because, so the way I describe like bits of evidence to you guys, there's clues, which are like circumstantial evidence, right? Clues are circumstantial evidence, and then there's actual evidence. And in this case, actual evidence would be like they're hiring people, um, They've admitted working on it. Uh, they have a licensing deal that maybe shows that they're going to use some type of technology, right? But this is more so circumstantial data. So it's, this is kind of more of like um, trying to solve a mystery, right? 2014 through 2016, hiring spree. In this three-year period, Riot Games was focused on hiring people with a background in MMO RPG development. Probably the most recognizable one is Greg, excuse me, Greg Street, a former lead systems designer for Blizzard Entertainment who worked on World of Warcraft. 
There were others he mentions. There was a lead gameplay designer they got from Zenimax. There was a lead systems designer they got from Firaxis, but worked at Zenimax before. His point here is that they've made a couple hirings of people who basically coincidentally worked on MMOs. That doesn't necessarily mean anything yet, but it, obviously it's a good place to start for a clue. And then, he says, lore revamp and expansion. Now, this is uh, probably his weakest point, but essentially the idea is that the world itself is Terra, and they created an interactive map. He sees this as them fleshing out the lore and background, which could potentially mean that they're working on an MMO. A little bit loose of an assumption here, but I can see kind of where his mind is at, right? Employees starting to let things slip. This is, um, again, very circumstantial because Mark Merrill said that he was joking. We don't know if he's joking after he said that they wanted to work on an MMO. It could be a way that he like was trying to garner attention, test people out. But point being, when he did make this announcement, he had a crap ton of uh, engagement on it. Here's the tweet in particular. Should we build an MMO, yay or nay? And this was in 2018 in July. Had 34,000 uh, likes and then 60, or sorry, 6.1 thousand um, retweets. Again, this doesn't necessarily mean anything. This is probably just him having fun. Or is it? Sometimes developers almost intentionally leak their products, but act like it's not leaking because you would think that they would never just outright come and say it, right? So again, that's kind of where the big clue, I, I guess I would say, comes from for some people. Now, there's other things. Apparently, he states that Greg Street, the developer we just mentioned previously, started making comments around the same time talking about that he was working on an MMO and that he would do a couple of things different um, from WoW with this given MMO. Again, hearsay. But it is interesting. And that's kind of how clues work. You start to, you know, get your little smorgasbord or you know this your your um your uh planning board right you've got lines with rubber bands connected to here to this pin to this pin and what you start to realize of course even with circumstantial uh evidence is that it all kind of ties together right and it certainly makes for a good case whenever you can apply a bunch of circumstantial evidence and be like see this means that this is the case obviously that's a hypothesis, right? You still have to test that out. You still have to get the evidence. But uh, it is interesting. And obviously, it's certainly fun for people like me. Apparently, there was a trademark spree, which, of course, is always a telltale sign that somebody's going to create a new game. In November, they said it came to light that Riot Games had filed many new trademarks for something called Legends of Terra. Obviously, that name itself makes you think, you know, Maybe massive, right? Because Rune Terra is the name of the world, right? So they didn't call it Legends of the League, or they didn't call it Legends of this very specific Noxia or Noxious or or Noxia region or whatever, right? They they described it as Legends of Rune Terra, the entire world or the entire map. Again, would mean nothing. People joke that it could just be a card game, <laughs> but. People speculate 
that this maybe was a mobile game, but then Tencent said that they had already uh, asked Riot to make a mobile game, to which Riot said no. There's a, a apparently a large variety and trademarks here. Let's see what we've got. Legends of Runeterra. They've got electrical and scientific apparatuses, paper goods, leather goods, clothing. This is a lot. It looks like they're they're whatever they're working on here. Again, I'm not going to state that it's an MMO, but whatever they are working on here, they're putting a whole lot of effort into figuring out what it is, right? Like they're they're building an entire marketing plan and identity that goes with it. They're not just going to sell you a game. That's not what these companies do, right? They sell you goods, they sell you clothing, they sell you merchandise, they sell you all of these other things that go with creating an IP. Could mean nothing, or it could mean that Riot Games really is working on an MMO. But um, if we're going to find something out about this, I agree with the uh, OP here. I think we'll probably find out something this year, um, even if it's just rumors and whatever else. But it's interesting to think about. Obviously, I like to follow uh, whenever large AAA companies decide to, to venture into the world of MMOs. Riot is one that I think that actually could do such. I think they have the ability to do such. I'm not sure how they would go about doing it necessarily, like their actual design aspects, but they certainly have the world, they have the clout, and they have the resources to make an MMO. And any time that happens, it's at least a little bit exciting, right? Because even if maybe you're just assuming that most new MMOs are going to be shit, at least we can be a little bit excited about it, right? And think, huh, well, maybe it could be good to some extent. And Maybe we don't necessarily trust AAA companies to bring us the good news yet. We've been kind of relying more on the indie market and the Kickstarter market and etc. But um, when AAA companies do do it right, it's awesome, isn't it? Because now we have a truly innovative and truly you know blockbuster level title. And when I say that, I mean budgeting, right? I'm talking blockbuster dollars here. Yeah, it could... It could spark others into action is also how I look at this sort of thing. Because who knows, maybe Valve sees this and is like, eh, we, we want a Dota MMO as well. I'm not saying it'd be good or that's what they'll do. I'm just saying it certainly opens up other people's eyes when they see that a big company is working potentially on an MMO. Now, uh, I'll go ahead and move to the next bit of news because that's uh, some speculation. It's fun. We can revisit that maybe when we get some more um clues or more evidence to look at but right now it's obviously just a theory or sorry hypothesis because the theory is actually tested so many people ask kind of what's to look forward to in 2019 when it comes to mmos and so i figured um i should do some sort of research but then i realized well somebody did that for me so somebody already went through picked up all of the dates and and names of games and essentially uh, compiled a list of what to look forward to MMO-wise in 2019. And now, this is this person's list. It's not necessarily my list. But um, I th I'll go ahead and link this in chat for those who are interested. Half-Life the MMO. <laughs> that would actually be, like, awesome. Like, Half-Life has the world to pull off an MMO. I think so. <clears throat> Okay, 
So first on the list, obviously, we have Lost Ark. This is something that's been talked about for some time. This is an MMO that uses the Unreal Engine 4. It looks like essentially a newer, cooler version of like a Diablo game, more in the MMO type of aspect. It launched in Korea, I believe, but or sorry, actually, it's launching in Korea soon, but we have no idea when it's going to come to the West, which is basically what he says here as well. Um, I'm not going to mention, I have no idea what this Project BBQ is. Oh, is sorry, I think this Dungeon Fighter Online is actually just a sequel. So I think he maybe didn't do as much research as he should here, but we already talked about this. Dungeon Fighter Online um, obviously was one of the most popular MMOs of all time, even though it doesn't seem that way and never necessarily had the reputation, but it actually is getting a sequel of sorts. Um, which I guess is... Um, this it yeah okay so they, they already did talk about it i don't know why he didn't just name it that but yeah this is a dungeon fighter online 3d if people remembered the first dungeon fighter it was a 2d i think side scroller game so this is already very different as you can see it uses the unreal engine 4 here sorry um make sure i have it on screen it looks impressive graphically looks impressive combat seems fast and snazzy as you would expect from typical kind of asian influenced games um that those graphics there look awesome like the coloring there looked awesome i really like kind of the effects here project uh barbecue <laughs> is uh it's looking as appealing as barbecue does right now for me which is pretty appealing um of course this is not my endorsement this is just me saying it looks kind of cool <laughs> so please take that with a grain of salt Yeah, exactly, Limpos. You you thought the same thing I thought here, which is like, it looks cool, but I only saw like two players on screen. So are we going back to lobby-based kinds of games or is this another instance? Because not that those things are necessarily bad because ultimately if it's fun, it's fun, but obviously um, have a little bit different idea of what's considered a massive multiplayer online game than maybe some people do. But um, certainly something to look forward to in 2019, at least like uh, watching the story unfold. New World, of course, is um, in alpha. It, it entered alpha last year and is supposed to have its open beta late 2019. It still has an NDA, so there's not a whole lot that I can talk about, even though I've had the chance to play the game behind the scenes, of course, in alpha and also play it at their studios. But there will be obviously some more information unfolding in 2019 concerning New World, at least hopefully. Crowfall... Uh, recently released a new alpha, as it says here. Um, I think they had promised a soft launch this year, but I don't know if necessarily that's still planned, and I actually think they already delayed that. So Crowfall, to give you just a little bit of my roundup on it, it's one of those games that I'm just not really sure kind of where they're going with it. Obviously, Todd Coleman and the team that had previously worked on Shadowbane works on the project. It's even had big names uh, help and in, in, in the way of like Raph Coster has offered advice and advising to the game. <clears throat> but Crowfall, it's strange because it started off as probably the most readily or readily available to play of the Kickstarter games. But it's kind of almost made like backwards progress in that way. Now we're starting to see Pantheon able to be played, Hamlot's unable, uh, or sorry, able to be played. Of course, you're able to play Lost Ark if you have a Korean account. Um, other new Kickstarter MMOs and, and just new MMOs in general 
are looking a little bit sexier than Crowfall is lately. I think that's because Crowfall's had to delay a lot of things. They've announced a focus on their engine. They want to use their engine as a proprietary engine and allow other people to license that engine, which is a total, you know, 180 from kind of like their initial uh, view of things, which was just create their own engine to which, you know, they need to use for their own game. Um, This is a very strange concept for me because it's like you're creating an engine that you want to sell to other developers, but your game itself doesn't really look that great on the engine. So that's kind of the weird thing about Crowfall for me is like, hey guys, come check out our engine, maybe potentially use it. But then it's like when you watch gameplay on Crowfall, as I've mentioned already, it's um, it needs a lot of polishing. The first thing that comes to mind when I think Crowfall is first off, what is their goal with the game? I'm still confused as to what it is. And second, polish. It needs polish. Okay. Camelot Unchained is in beta one now. And people are speculating that actually, if I remember correctly, they were targeting a launch in 2019 um, with their new outside funding that they acquired in the in the realm of like seven to ten million, if I remember correctly, on top of their already eight to nine million or whatever it was. Basically speaking, they're almost up to about 20 million. And I think they were looking to have I mean, Limpos is in chat. Maybe he can correct me. But are they still targeting the uh, the launch for 2019? I know that's what Mark Jacobs said recently with Camelot, but. I'm not 100% sure if that's 100% recent. Anyway, while he's answering that question, we can go into Pantheon Rise of the Fallen. It's in pre-alpha still. Last time I checked, uh, they hadn't announced anything else with Pantheon. I'm going to make a YouTube video about this, right? So please, if you're if you're wondering that I don't seem so uh, re- 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 researched here, or rehearsed rather, it's because I'm not. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Okay, so yeah, Limpos says 2019 winter release is still the plan for Camelot Unchained. So hopefully that comes to fruition because um, that's a game that certainly has a lot of hype around it. And justifiably so. Even just from its engine perspective, it's proven way more with its engine than other MMOs have, especially like when you compare it to like Crowfall. All right, anyway, here's Pantheon. Pantheon, if I remember correctly, hasn't announced a launch and is probably maybe nowhere near close to announcing a launch considering they're still in pre-alpha. So I don't really know how much more information we're going to get in 2019 from Pantheon, but it's very likely that if they're going to choose a time to enter into a a full alpha, I guess, or maybe even a closed beta of sorts, this is probably the year to do it. So we can, I guess, um, keep our eyes out for Pantheon to see how they end up... um, shaking out in 2019 dual universe um i haven't seen so much about dual universe i know that comparatively to other space games dual universe allows full customization of uh structures of ships it has a lot more of a space engineers feel to it than maybe star citizen or you know even just other space games like um uh elite dangerous and whatever else I don't have much uh, opinion on Dual Universe. I've been told to reach out to them before. I still haven't done that yet. I need to, but they're still kind of an early alpha testing. When companies are in alpha test or pre-alpha, I'm not really interested in, in following the games that much. Like, yes, from a journalistic perspective, I want to keep you guys updated on what you know stories are, are kind of unfolding, but I'm not the news guy. 
I'm not um, young yeah or, or whatever. Like I'm not going to sit here and read an article to you uh, every time some little bit of news information comes out. I like to do deep dives, right? I like to put a lot of effort into my analysis. So like with, with Dual Universe, there's just not enough of a game there yet for me, for me really to analyze it. But I will say, out of all of the other space games, it seems to be the most sandboxy, which is obviously certainly exciting. Um, Legends of Aria, we've talked about that before, so I won't talk about that too much here. Final Fantasy XIV is getting a new expansion uh, to launch in summer of 2019. So Final Fantasy XIV, for those who haven't followed it, is doing swimmingly. In fact, they're doing better than they've ever done. They're actually reaching a point now where they actually might be rivaling uh, WoW or starting to rival WoW. I'm not saying that they have as much players yet, but people are jumping ship from WoW. And Final Fantasy XIV, for that kind of progression raider or story-centric player, PvE-centric player, the ones who can't, you know, or the ones who can stomach the 1.5 GCD or whatever, but um, those kinds of players, you have a good game to go to, right? You can, you can transition to Final Fantasy XIV, and it looks like it's been a pretty good destination for people who've been leaving WoW recently. <clears throat> a third expansion, let's see. The first expansion was... Um, can we count A Realm Reborn as an expansion? No, that's like a reboot. So let's, call, let's count that as a reboot. And then we have um, Storm Sword, or no, Heaven Sword, and um, what was that more recent one? Heaven Sword and, uh, damn it, I can't remember off the top of my head what that recent one called. I know somebody in chat knows, so I won't bother um, explaining to you guys. <clears throat> was it Blood something? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Star Wars The Old Republic is getting a story patch. And a new expansion is supposed to drop sometime in fall of 2019. So basically what that means is that the game is still alive and well, has a vibrant population, is widely successful commercially, and is not dead considering it still is releasing new content. Anyway. Bloodstorm. Thanks for that, Fruit Hoops. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for the three-pointer. All right, so they say, wow. Blood? <laughs> Stormblood? Is it really Stormblood? Okay, it's Stormblood. While early indications are that patches 8.2 and 8.3 aim to fix several of the issues with BFA. Uh, yeah, this, that's a little bit hopeful. Um, that's some wishful thinking here by the guy who created this little um, information blurb. Because, um... I haven't seen a whole lot of indicators that WoW or Blizzard really knows how to fix BFA or is prepared to put in the amount of work that they would have to put in to fix BFA. Instead, it looks like, why even bother, guys? We got classic WoW coming in 2019, right? That's probably what they're thinking. They're thinking to themselves like, yeah, we could really work on BFA, and of course we will. But also, classic WoW, yeah. So I think Blizzard might Depending on how they handle the launch this year, um, they could regain a lot of their previous street cred and maybe even kind of revitalize some of their fan base. But <laughs> could you guys imagine if Blizzard messes up Classic WoW? Can you imagine the outrage if they fuck up the launch? It's going to be glorious to watch. 
and participate in because I will be there at Classic WoW launch. So I'm really eager to see, can Blizzard maybe kind of like rewrite some of those wrongs? Can they, can they maybe show some growth here or maybe just a return to old school form? I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be um, classic WoW, whether you're a fan who wants to play it, whether you think it's overrated, whether you think most people will quit, whether you just want to watch the shit show, it's going to be fun for all of us to watch and play and whatever else. It's going to be a great story and it's going to be, excuse me, a huge story of 2019. So pay attention to uh, that. Pretty sure the <laughs> base races are human or orc. You can spend 99 cents for a loot box that may contain more classes or races. <laughs> okay, Elder Scrolls Online. We'll probably get another zone DLC in the same vein as Merkmire, this guy says. Possibly another dungeon DLC with a new story expansion planned in the summer. So Elder Scrolls, right now their business plan seems to be create new full feature, you know, expansions, full feature story expansions, sell them to our buy-to-play audience, aka you have to buy the new expansion, use that money to then put back into the game to create more content. So basically, uh, Elder Scrolls right now online is caught in the WoW um, form of like uh, content. Uh, basically, actually, I take that back. It's it's in what's called the theme park the theme park um, workload. What I mean by that is that theme park games are first and foremost reliant on developer-made content. This means that if developers don't introduce new content, player base dies. Like simply put, that's how theme parks work. If you don't increase content, player base dies. Because unlike in old school games like maybe Ultima, or maybe galaxies like on the emulator, those games with smaller populations are, I mean, not, not certainly not small populations, but they don't need a whole lot of developer interaction because there's so many tools already. Players can create their own kinds of content, right? But with a game like Elder Scrolls Online, which is about as on rails as you can get in some cases, it needs the developer to constantly hold the player's hand to bring them to the next batch of content. The reason why I'm mentioning this is that the only way that ever goes bad is if the new expansion is deemed not worth the money, right? So whenever the new expansion comes out, and I'm not saying that this one will, I'm just saying, theoretically speaking here, <coughs> look at BFA, for example. When the new expansion isn't so good, it hurts the population, hurts the profits, and then the, the theme park game, or in this case, Elder Scrolls Online or WoW or whoever else, Blizzard, they have to create a new expansion that hopefully will right some of the previous wrongs or at least revitalize their player base. So they have to constantly reinvent themselves yearly. And that seems to be working for Elder Scrolls Online so far. They're making new story expansions yearly, and they're essentially using the money from the previous expansion to start to work on the new expansion. As long as they keep doing that, they'll continue to keep making content and they'll be successful. My fear though, when I see companies get into this type of uh, um, kind of loop, I guess I would say, is you're already seeing with WoW, right? WoW has proven to us that even the guys who created the idea of theme park and developer, you know, made expansions and, and uh, sorry, yearly or multi-yearly, sorry, bi-yearly expansions and big, paid developer content expansions 
WoW essentially kind of created that trend of doing that. And for the longest time was the only MMO who could get away with it. I mean, it was the only MMO who could reliably release new content that was good enough to keep their, in, their audience interested. But the thing that was most interesting to me about BFA not doing particularly well is that it proved my theory, which is like my theory is that developer-made content and theme park games work great whenever your audience is, is willing to play the content that's being given to them. But as soon as that homeostasis is like threatened and that new expansion isn't so great, like in the case of BFA, it's catastrophic for the game's player base. It kills population almost instantaneously. We've already seen that. WoW's lost a large amount of population from its failures with BFA. And um, it becomes, again, a situation where now WoW has this extreme burden to fix BFA because they still have to fix their previous expansion that launched unfinished, but also has to think about potentially launching a new expansion because once again, if they don't, people will quit the game regardless. So what I'm trying to say here is that it's a very fine line and a dangerous line to walk. But developers who work on theme park games have to constantly reinvent at least enough content to keep people coming, right? It's the carrot on the stick. Keep bringing that carrot on the stick and, and getting that rabbit or uh, the person in this case, like us, to keep chasing that, that, um, that I almost called it a rabbit on the stick, <laughs> uh, to keep chasing that carrot, right? You're dangling that carrot. That's content, right? The carrot is the content. The stick is the developer holding it at a length and probably behind loot boxes and, and RNG and shit, but uh, these days. So it's an even longer stick. <laughs> the stick's gotten even longer because like there's so many uh, caveats that go with it. We are the player or the rabbit in this case, and we're just chasing after the stick, right? We're just chasing after the carrot on the stick. But when that carrot starts to turn green and not look so appealing, we no longer want to chase it. And guess what? If we stop chasing the carrot on the stick, the game stops working. Because it doesn't have the kind of environment that it can work on its own, right? It doesn't have that. I think that's kind of what they're hoping to do with Classic WoW, um, going back to Blizzard here. But to bring it back to Elder Scrolls, as long as they can keep doing well enough, which they have with their expansions, it'll continue to be successful. But you guys will see the same things happen to them as it's happened to Final Fantasy XIV, as it's happened to WoW, which is as soon as one expansion goes bad, all of a sudden the game is in a lot of trouble because remember, they have so much that they have to satisfy in terms of content and also people's uh, expectations, right? <clears throat> Ultimately, uh, my point is, is that Sandbox is a far more sustainable business model. It is. That's been proven time and time again. Um, the games that are the most played old school MMOs are sandbox games, right? When you look at the old school games, which ones are still played that are old as hell? Theoretically speaking, it's sandbox games. And that's because they don't need somebody to constantly hold your hand throughout the entire process. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If you like that kind of content, totally understand. Every now and then I like to go to a fast food joint, right? <clears throat> Every now and then I like to go to a theme park. That's essentially on the rails as you can get. But it's just that business model, ultimately, it's very hard to sustain unless you can keep that audience interested. Expansion after expansion after expansion. All right. So Division 2, I won't talk too much about that. Division 1 um, launched with not such a good uh, uh, fanfare, but then kind of like really revitalized itself in a lot of ways. Uh, Ubisoft managed to kind of like redo the, the Division 1 
and kind of garner some sort of core fan base again, even though they just widely fucked that up initially. So people are excited, actually, with Division 2 because they were able to kind of fix the Division 1 to some extent. So people are kind of seeing, like, can they just do it right the first time now with Division 2? Now, um, Division 2 is one of those games that's, like, right on the, the list or right on the edge of being considered an MMO. But uh, I just figured I'd talk about it because it's on the list. Apparently, there's more rumors of a new expansion coming for Guild Wars 2. Once again, there has to be a new expansion. That's what I'm trying to, to stress to you guys. For theme park games, they have to keep releasing new content. Otherwise, they just outright are going to have mass exodus of players. It might not happen overnight, right? But it will happen over a couple of months. And next thing you know, they have a fraction of the same population they did before. Whereas when you look at sandbox games, their population charts are... Like, so theme park population charts are like this. Right? Expansion? The point is an expansion? The lull between expansions goes down. I'm not saying it goes directly down in that specific way. I'm not saying I know the statistics exactly. But generally speaking, every time there's an expansion, there's a spike, right? Followed by a downturn. With sandbox games, the spikes aren't as exaggerated, right? They're slight. When they release new content, it's, more, it's typically more slight, right? Because ultimately speaking, the players who play such a game don't need their hand to be held and don't want on-the-rails content necessarily, right? They, they want more tools to play with, essentially. More tools don't create more players overnight, right? Like an expansion does. If, if WoW launches an expansion tomorrow, all of a sudden a surprise expansion, whether or not people trust them right now, it's going to have a big spike in population, followed by a downturn in population. Um, so when you look at Elder Scrolls, WoW, Final Fantasy XIV, Guild Wars 2, all of them suffer from like the, essentially the same core issue, which is that they have to keep releasing big, you know, exciting, huge expansions if they want to keep people interested. Otherwise, you run out of things to do, right? Because there's not enough core of the game to go around. You, you constantly need something to be uh, given to you and led down a certain path. There's a Magic the Gathering MMO that has been released. I, I actually remember that. I'm sorry, being released in the future. Um, but right now, it's such early uh, stages that I think the only thing that's been confirmed so far is that there is an MMO being made in the Magic the Gathering universe. Um, I can't really remember who was the developer that was working on it, so I'm going to have to look that up. Okay, so all we know is that Cryptic is the one that's working on it, uh, which uh, doesn't really have me excited, I'll be honest. <laughs> if you can't tell the silence, I'm not uh, really optimistic about how that will turn out, but there was also that new Lord of the Rings MMO, which we talked about, and there's essentially no information on it except that it's being developed by, I believe, the publisher for um, Black Desert Online, was it? No, 
uh, a Asian Warframe publisher or something like that. Some some really like basically a company we've never heard of somehow managed to get a license to make a Lord of the Rings MMO, and apparently it's um it's supposed to be a pretty ambitious one. So I hope that when they do a Lord of the Rings MMO. I hope it's just not the same old tropes over and over again. I hope this ain't the same kind of like spoon-fed content that we've been getting. I just think that Lord of the Rings as a game is not a game. Sorry, as a world, it's not a world that's designed to be theme park. I just don't think it is. If anything, like Star Wars, they're two of the worlds that are best served to be open-ended uh, in sandbox types of environments. Is it bad that I am very hesitant about Asian MMO designers? No, not at all. Not at all. Because Asian MMOs have a particular style. So if you didn't like Asian MMOs because they're made by Asians, then yes, you're racist. <laughs> but if you don't like Asian style MMOs because of whatever gameplay reason, which by the way, I don't typically like them. I have no issue saying that to people. But it doesn't necessarily make me racist. <laughs> um. Such a shame. As someone who's been playing MTG for probably half a decade, an MMO in the universe could be insanely stellar. Oh, I totally agree. They have so much lore and stuff to rely on. But, I, I mean, Cryptic is just... I'm sorry, like... Cryptic is a shell of what they used to be, first off. Sorry, I was just re er, reacting to, to chat. I'm, I'm actually realizing... Tired, but... um. I think that's basically all we have to talk about here in particular. Um, oh, a little bit more to, to rant about here. Okay, so on the stream today, I wanted to talk to everybody about the concept and difference between a classic MMO, a classic experience, and a progression server. Yes, the rant continues. We've actually talked about this a little bit, right? We've talked about this in the past, but I saw this thread pop up on the MMORPG subreddit, and as you can tell from my downvote here, I wasn't really happy with this kind of rhetoric, and I never am happy with this kind of rhetoric. To explain what I mean, people keep conflating the differences between a progression server and a classic server. So I'll make this as abundantly clear as I possibly can so I don't have to explain this again. A classic server is when you take an MMO and give it a classic uh, patch, essentially, right? So the classic MMO is 1.0 WoW, 1.5 WoW, you know, whatever they end up using. 1.43, I'm not sure what, exactly which one they end up using, but um, point being is people are adamant on making sure that it is the current patch uh, uh, number at that current time of the game. So if you're playing WoW Classic, a.k.a. WoW Vanilla, you're playing it at the WoW Vanilla patch note, right? One point whatever it is. 1.06, Limpaz says. I'm not sure if that's true. I have to double check. But point being, that's considered classic WoW. What's not considered classic WoW is if right now WoW were to create, or sorry, uh, Blizzard were to create a WoW server that starts in Vanilla WoW but has the current patch note, AKA 8.45 or something like that. 8.4 something it is right now. 8.43, I can't remember off the top of my head, but point being, 
wows all the way up to eight point something, right? The difference between a classic server and a progression server is a classic server in all intents and purposes is actually classic, right? It has classic patches, classic balancing, classic experience. A progression server hides under the guise that it's a classic server, right? It masquerades as being a classic server because it says, hey, it's a 1.0, you know, like you're, it's the, you're experiencing the content from the first, you know, game and expansion or whatever else. Like, yeah, like, you know, it's vanilla. But why is the balancing all, the, all different? Um, well, you know, we couldn't really like kind of change that or whatever else. Wait a minute. So are you literally just taking a normal server, locking off content? And then telling me and selling me on the bill that this is a classic feel of a server? Yeah, this is basically exactly what they're doing. That's why I've been hard against this new Lord of the Rings legendary server, and I've been hard against Rift Prime in my Rift video, and I've always been hard against such servers. Is essentially, this is what they do. It's 100% a marketing ploy. They sell you on the idea that you're going to play the game in its classic uh, existence, right? You're not, though. Objectively, that's not true. You're not playing it at the same patch that the game was at during its classic period. Instead, they're merely time-gating the content behind a progression wall and allowing everyone to complete the content at a similar pace. So it's a progression server, right? It's different. It's not the same thing. The reason why I'm so against progression servers is 99% of the time, they operate under the same guise, which is... We're a free-to-play game. Um, mostly, this is what they do. They're free-to-play games that charge premium subscriptions to play on, which means they are no longer free-to-play. They are now subscription-based MMOs to play on those given servers. They lock you behind content. They don't allow you to play it at the classic patch or classic feel of the game, but essentially sell you that on the bill of goods, right? So I talked about this with Rift, right? Rift Prime came out. It offered this subscription-based thing that didn't have uh, microtransactions. So it's a classic experience because it doesn't have microtransactions. Well, Lord of the Rings uh, Legendary Server does have microtransactions. In fact, it, it still has microtransactions. It still has a sub-fee that it requires now to play on. And it literally is artificially locking you from completing content. I'm making sense to you guys. Are you understanding what the difference is here? It's, it's subtle for some. For me, it's blatantly fucking obvious. When I want to play classic WoW, I want to play WoW at 1.12, the battleground patch, right? Like uh, Lempos said in chat. I want to play 1.12. I'm not trying to play classic WoW content with an 8.43 patch. It's not the same game. It's so different. Like, think about WoW. Like, it's a perfect example. Hell, Lord of the Rings is a perfect example. Lord of the Rings Online. Lord of the Rings Online came out in 07. That means that it's currently been out for 12 years. You're telling people you're going to have a classic experience if you play content that's 12 years old with 12 years of patches and updates since then. Huh? How is that a classic experience? That's just a progression server. That's just marketing. The reason why I rant about this is because this is one of the easiest ways to mislead people. 
They capitalize on your nostalgia. They capitalize on your old school good feelings from playing classic games and playing old school WoW and playing old school Lord of the Rings. And they try and sell it as the same thing when at the end of the day, it's just false advertising. And they know it's false advertising, but they don't care because guess what? It works. It's successful. Rift Prime proved it to be successful temporarily, which is always the, you know, the key is it never lasts long. It just, it does well. And then it falls off, but they don't care, right? Because they've already got their money from the sub fees. They've already got their money from the new microtransactions. Free to play games, they don't need consistent customers. Don't get me wrong. Best case scenario, you have consistent customers. But free to play games, the reason why they make more money than subscription based games on average is because the barrier for entry is also, it's much lower, but also much higher. And what I mean by that is that to play a sub based game, you pay $10 to $15 a month. To play a free to play game, you might not pay anything. Or you might pay $100 or $200. There's no cap. It doesn't need to be just $15. I, I'm uncapped now. I could spend hundreds of dollars on the game, right? And so after I spend, let's say I'm X customer and I'm a whale, what's considered a whale, which is essentially a person who spends way too much money on a free to play game. So let's say I spend $1,000. $1,000, right? A single customer spends $1,000. How many subscriptions is that? Now you're starting to understand how they make money. That's like 66 people. Me alone. Me as a single whale who spends $1,000 on the game. That's, that's like the same as having 66 people sub to the game for $15 a month. It's huge. And guess what? When I you know, delete my, uh, my, my game and I no longer am playing... 66.666. I know that that was a awfully uh, specific number. Um, surely not to um, say anything else, but do you, do you understand how great of marketing this is? If they can at least sell to, let's say 10% more of an audience and that 10% at least spends $10 on a free to play game for the sub fee or whatever they they're charging now. Uh, whoops. Uh, what was I saying? 10 times what? Oh, ten $10 times, um, or t sorry, 10% of their audience is, I don't know, let's just, let's be very, very generous here and say that they managed to get 50,000 players to play their game. I highly doubt that, but let's say that. I want to see if it actually tells you here that you have access to the uh, legendary server. Um, where is it? Okay. It's available to VIP subscribers. So in order to play this classic experience, you spend $15, right? And so let's say they, I don't know, convinced 25,000 people to purchase at least one month to play. $375,000 they managed to gain in our hypothetical scenario where they sold to, um, what did I say, 25,000 people at a $15 amount. 
but that's just the beginning, guys. That's just required. They also give you points every month, as well as give you other things. And of course, they have a market that you can purchase things on. So then you end up coming to like this, uh, well, actually, this is not gonna show all the things you can purchase in the game. And by the way, whenever you sub, you get the um, content unlocked for you. So it's not like you have to buy all of this and sub. But point being is, I can't show you, uh, maybe I can Google this. To kind of show you like uh, how the in-game store works. Okay, here we go. In-game store. You're paying for inventory slot. Everything you guys have ever experienced in a free-to-play game. You're playing, or you're paying for inventory slots. You're paying for uh, bag slots, bank slots, uh, certain things with guilds, consumables, items, skins, blah 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 blah. You know that's how a free-to-play game works. But a classic server, sorry, progression server or classic server, got twenty-five thousand new players and already has made them three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Obviously, this cost has to go somewhere. Not all of it is profit. Sorry, not all of it is... Um, yeah, not, uh, it's all revenue, but it's not all profit. Now, these 25,000 players, what if only 5,000 of them remain? So now that number drops to 75,000 a month, which is still pretty damn good, right? But what if after, out of those 5,000 players, a fifth of them, 1,000 decide they'll make one purchase of $10 on the shop, which is pretty fair assumption, I would say. Now, they've, now they make 80000 a month, right? But what if the whales, of course, because there's always whales, and let's say it's only 100 whales, spend $1,000 on the game? Guys, not, do you understand now why free-to-play is so powerful? and why these marketing strategies are used, it's because either I can get 5,000 players to, or actually I'll just do the math straight up here. Either I can get 6,666 players to play my game and I'll make $100,000, or I just get 100 players to be whales. I made way more money off of the whales. This is why games go free to play. This is why free to play is the number one way to make money. Because who needs 25,000 subs? Who needs 6,000 subs? I can get 100 subs that really want to spend a lot of money on my game and I make just as much, if not more money, right? So this is another cherry on top to the whole progression server. So if you ever wonder why I went through that whole thing about how they're misleading you, and you might ask why would a company want to mislead you? Well, we know why. Money, right? So I wanted to remark about this and rant about it because I hate when people say that a progression server is a classic server. It's not the same. Please stop calling it the same thing. You're misleading people. You're making companies money that essentially are just using them as advertisement schemes. That's all it is. It's just a, it's just a marketing scheme. Like whenever I want to sell shirts, right? Uh, most people who sell shirts, by the way, I sell shirts, but I don't do this because I'm against this kind of thing. But not because like morally, but just it's just I'm not really worth my time. But a lot of people who do shirt sales do what's called limited edition shirt sales, right? 
where I only sell 100. This is useful because I know exactly how many I need to uh, prepare. And it, and it also means that I'm likely going to sell out, which always gives me a good kind of like vibe whenever I sell out on something. It's the idea of like limited, it's limited edition. This is no different in the sense that it's also a marketing scheme that's used to capitalize on people's nostalgia, their feelings, right? It takes advantage of those sorts of things. Oh, you want classic experience? As this guy says, hey everyone, I love MMOs and the old school MMOs. Like I dabbled in 2000, or I dabbled in Lotro in 2007. I've decided to give legendary servers a go. I miss the old school wild style, uh, wild style leveling and all of these other stuff. It's like, you know, if you're waiting around for WoW Classic, guys, give the legendary server a try. How is this guy not marketing for them? Like, he has to be selling them. Like, this guy has to be... He has to work at the damn company. Because, like, again, I'm not saying he's a bad person. On the surface, it seems like the same thing. Classic, legendary server. But he's saying that, hey, if you're waiting around for WoW Classic... Which, by the way, as we had described, is a completely different experience. Why not play a progression server, which is literally invented to monetize you, right? Why not? It's the same thing. Like, classic, you know, progression server. You play the content late, you know, it's like, whatever. Like, it's the same kind of thing, right? Patch, 8 point, whatever. Who cares? It's classic. Like, you're playing the old school, like, content, right? It's not classic. It's misleading, and it's marketing. <laughs> okay. Uh, one last thing, actually, second to last thing, because I will get to that last thing, because I need to update you guys on some things. One last thing we'll talk about is some recent news that the Nexon founder, who apparently owns like 97% of his company, is trying to, uh, is trying to sell a major stake, uh, apparently a controlling stake, which is even more significant, because it means that they now will control the board, whoever ends up purchasing this. This has caught people off guard, and obviously, this is a little bit more of like technical data that maybe for most of us doesn't necessarily mean anything yet. But as it says, uh, apparently, the founder of the company somehow managed to hold on to such a large controlling stake of a company, which is unheard of. But he but he has a stake around nine billion dollars. Uh, I think actually, I think that's a post. A different I don't think that's dollars anyway uh, what else does it say here that I can uh, mention it says potential buyers or cacao which by the way if people aren't familiar is a massive uh, telemarket or telemarketer company in um, Korea apparently Tencent is even considering purchasing a large stake as is EA oh man guys Nexon, for those who don't remember, essentially invented microtransactions as we know them today. For people who don't remember uh, my microtransactions video, I talked about this. Nexon created the idea of like free to play with skins, essentially on a whim. They had a game that they were about to shut down. Instead of shutting it down, they figured, why not just make it free, but then like charge like costumes? Like, you know, like what's the worst that could happen? The couple hundred players quit, whatever. Like the game's gonna die anyway. Well, they discovered possibly the most successful business model, period, right? <laughs> like, everyone's using this kind of business model now. Nexon was one of the first companies to really kind of um, make that known. Most people think it's NCSoft, incorrectly, because NCSoft, ironically, 
And Korea primarily relies on sub-based games. Besides, uh, besides, I would say, um, uh, man, I'm I'm brain farting like crazy. But besides, um, what's that damn game that NCSoft came out with recently that launched free to play? Blade, Blade and Soul. Blade and Soul is like one of the few exceptions, and I think that's because. NCSoft's starting to try and follow the market now, realizing that free-to-play is kind of the way to go if you want to make money. But anyway, Nexon has been there, done that. They've been doing that for a minute, right? Um, and apparently the founder of the company is trying to sell a controlling stake, which means over 50% of the company, right? He's trying to sell. The reason why this is significant, guys, is if you thought Nexon was problematic before... Can you imagine how they're going to be now that they get gobbled up by major like the, a bunch of different companies with different interests trying to ultimately make more money? I mean, look at these names here, guys. Tencent? Electronic Arts? I mean, like, Cacao? Like, I don't know who this NetMarble Corp is, but I know en enough about the other companies. But these other companies, they are corporations who make money. Like, that's first and foremost what they do. They're publicly traded companies. All of the ones that I see here are publicly traded companies. Um, they're corporations who, first and foremost, are about monetizing things. It's a little bit worrying to see such a well-known uh, publisher and developer of MMOs, even if you don't necessarily like their games. You kind of have that realization. They were doing all of that before with basically one guy controlling the company, like primarily. Now they're going to have a board... And all of these publishers and, and um, sorry, not publishers, all these investor type relationships. I'm, I'm very scared for current Nexon games and I'm scared for the future of Nexon in terms of um, what kind of games are, they're going to make. I'm, I'm not afraid of their monetary future. I'm sure they'll figure it out just fine. But I'm, I'm kind of afraid of what this would mean for the market as a whole because it just seems like it's going to be more of the same kind of game from more of the same kind of company. So this is kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of bad news, guys. <laughs> like one of the uh, top comments says, it's like, um, yeah, apparently he held 97% of the company's stake, by the way. That's insane. Like insane to hold 97% of a $9 billion, you know, dollar or whatever it is, you know, billion dollar company. It's a billion dollar company. It's like, that's insane that you have a billion dollar company and you own 97% of it. And now, just now, you're starting to give up part of that? <laughs> it's, it's only going to get worse from here. Okay, last bit uh, to talk about on the podcast, and then I will be saying goodbye to you guys. Unless you have some questions for me uh, before I leave, of course. Um, Fallen Earth released another uh, press release saying that they vowed to rebuild the game, which could possibly involve a complete reboot. Now, I brought this story up for those who followed my channel and followed me covering Fallen Earth and Little Orbit, the company that purchased both Fallen Earth and APB and had intentions of remaking those games. We've chronicled that in a couple of our videos. We've talked about it on podcasts. In particular, we knew that APB wasn't as much in danger. That's because APB used the Unreal 3 engine. Little Orbit is working on transitioning them to 3.5 and then eventually Unreal 4. So they're essentially trying to give it like a facelift with a new engine. They can't do the same with Fallen Earth, unfortunately. And I knew that from the very beginning. And we talked about this from the very beginning in our video on Fallen Earth. 
That's because Fallen Earth uses a proprietary engine, which essentially means it's kind of spaghetti code invented by other people who, in most cases, probably don't really work for the same company anymore. Because remember, they were already acquired. Icarus Studios, the company behind Fallen Earth, was already acquired by Gamers First, which was then acquired by Little Orbit. So it's changed hands a couple of times. I don't know how many of the same programmers or developers are involved. And I knew they were going to have issues because the game's netcode itself is uh, not so great. The game is pretty buggy. And the gameplay, as I'll show you very quickly for those who haven't followed it, isn't um, so crisp. It's essentially a game that if it could get a facelift, would be much better off. As you notice here, it's... um. <laughs> it certainly looks uh, 10 years old and then some, right? And so I always knew this game was going to struggle to have some sort of facelift of an engine because unlike with um, APB, they can't just upgrade it to another Unreal Engine. It literally uses an Icarus engine. Like, it's called the Icarus engine. Like, it's a proprietary engine. But apparently Little Orbit, or Matthew Scott from Little Orbit, I believe he's the CEO, says that... um. It's been difficult to deal with, but they're essentially getting to the point to where they're not even sure if they're going to be able to redo the game or they're going to have to completely reboot the game. So this is interesting to me because, first off, we don't even necessarily know if they're going to be willing to reboot the game, but the fact that they are is admirable, and it's very interesting. How often do we see a game that's essentially been dead to rights get a rebirth of sorts? Not a whole lot. Um, but it's interesting to see kind of how using a pre-existing engine and a well-established engine versus a proprietary engine long-term can create so much issues for your game because it's like whenever you want to um, do new things, right, and maybe like change core parts of your engine, it's very difficult because engines are living, growing entities, right? Um, Unreal has been around now for like 20 years or something insane like that. It's been around like 19 years. So it's had a lot of time to iterate. And obviously it's at like Unreal 4 point whatever now. With Fallen Earth, because it doesn't have that same kind of like long standing, long running engine behind it, it's in a situation like other MMOs are that use proprietary engines that can't be uh, ported to any other type of engine. It's kind of like you either reboot the game or you kind of shut it down. So it says that they're going to give it their best effort to rebuild the game. But uh, even they're stating here, it's going to be a long process involving many stages. So it's going to be an interesting development. This was just me kind of remarking about something that I um, have been following. So I wanted to get a, give a little bit of an update that unfortunately for Fallen Earth, it's looking quite difficult for them to give it the same kind of um, rebuild or rejuvenation that they wanted to give it. Uh, bordering on them having to possibly just completely reboot it. So uh, we'll see how that ends up uh, panning out, but it's certainly interesting. I actually don't have really anything else to talk about here, so I'll take this time um, to ask uh, my audience if you guys have any questions uh, you'd like to ask me, treat this section or segment rather as an AMA of sorts. Um, also, uh, card wouldn't you know forgive me if I didn't take this time to also mention if there's anybody interested in moderating in the future with our podcast that literally just means collecting questions and then sending them to me um, that would be great you could please uh, message me you can email me you can send me a message on discord um, 
there's tons of ways you can contact me for that. So I'm gonna go ahead and switch it to our call-in segment. So now, again, these call-ins won't be very long. So if you have a question, please try and keep it brief and short because I don't want to be here a whole lot today. Let me um, change this to 28 because we actually increased our subs uh, a little bit. That's good to see. All right, so the first question is thoughts on the heat uh, game coming to scene. Oh, wait, are you going to ask me a question? Sorry, so just to make it uh, um, clear for you guys, you can at me in Discord. Sorry, you can at me in Twitch chat if you want to ask me a question that you don't want to ask over voice, if you just want to kind of like ask me a text-based question, if you're at work or whatever else, totally fine. If you want to ask me a question through voice, you want to join our Discord and join Podcast Lobby and talk to Card about asking me a question. Um, but I'll go ahead and open up the floor now. Remember, if nobody asks any questions, I'm ending it. I'm not going to sit here and wait. <laughs> so start asking questions, everybody. Thoughts on Heat game soon coming to Steam? I'm not uh, familiar with this game. Can you tell me some more about this game? Okay. So I'm going to show on screen. Sorry. You link, you link something there, but the auto moderator GG'd you. Okay. All right. So it looks like um, some type of like Wild West MMO slash survival looking game. That looks like it's an early access. It's pretty early on. Ooh, I like the blood splatter. I like that there's a kickback on the gun. The effects actually don't look terrible. Um, you see a lot of uh, smoke from obviously firing weapons and such. Smoke from the fire. The effects, um, they don't look terrible, I guess, if I can base it off of that. I think it's very... The, these kinds of like uh, universes are very interesting because they're very simple to do, but they're very... like It's very easy to make fun because... While none of us might want to go out there and actually like chop down a tree and build a fire, um, we'll sure as hell do it in a video game. <laughs> so yes, it looks like a survival game. Doesn't look like a, look like an MMO. It describes itself as a survival game. I mean, I don't really have a uh, same dev as Reign of Kings. Hmm. Well, funny enough, the Reign of Kings devs essentially had a game that was like pretty good, like on a core basis, but can never evolve past that because ultimately speaking. It's easy to make something playable. It's hard to make something actually good. But just from watching this, animations look pretty early on. It's clearly early access. Um, it clearly needs some time. But um, I'll say, as I always say with these types of projects that are in new kind of more inventive universes, and I know Red Dead just came out, so everyone's probably like, Cowboys aren't new, dude. But I mean, for survival games, they're pretty new. So if a cowboy Western kind of survival game a game where you're like trying to become the president and, and have some sort of government. That's a brilliant idea. They went for the similar concept in Reign of Kings with the whole king concept. Essentially what that means is they're creating a constant power struggle, which creates constant types of content. This is the kind of thing that theme park games would need in order to have content that has a longer shelf life than uh, developer-made content. All right, I won't... Um waste too much time talking about the rest of that i appreciate you for asking the question though grand hoy um sorry 
What else do we got? Um, Lempos. Hey, what's up? Oh, am I on now? Yeah, you're on now. What's going on? What do you have? Well, uh, the question I wanted to ask was um, in regards to our classic and how it's, what would you say, how it's going to affect the market? Because we're essentially regressing, what, 12 years or something back? And what, uh, what the thought was, if it's going to steal away customers and people from all these other MMOs, and if, say, say it steals 100,000 or 200,000 people from these new MMOs coming out, that's 100,000 or 200,000 people that suddenly aren't going to be investing in new innovative MMOs, instead going back to a very old model, giving money to a company that people currently aren't particularly happy about. Okay, so um, it's interesting because like, I, I think about this sometimes of like, is there ever such a thing as making backward progress? And in this particular case, I think, yeah, on a surface level, you can definitely make the argument that it does seem like it's like backward steps. But I, I think I talked about this um, two podcasts ago where I kind of mentioned how ultimately when people ask for MMOs like they used to be, some people just mean nostalgia, which means it's literally impossible to ever get that same kind of experience, right? But generally speaking, you know, people, I guess like me, whenever they say they, they miss old school MMO experiences, I'm just talking about it from the perspective of like, if the new experiences were the same or better, then I'd be happy. But I think for many people, they don't see WoW Classic as a regression. They actually see it as a progression because it's like, even though... It's clearly the 12 year, you know, however old now, I think 13, 14 year old version of the, of the game. It certainly doesn't have as much content as it has now. The way that the game functioned was different. And, and that's uh, pretty significant for some people. It's significant enough to be better than, you know, the original experience because they missed that old kind of like framework, I guess I would say. So although WoW Classic certainly will hurt other MMOs and their population counts, especially even itself, like its own game, um, MMO players ultimately are fickle. So whether or not it impacts it at first actually doesn't really mean a whole lot in, in the sense of like, how is it going to impact the market overall? But I mean, obviously it's WoW and it's classic WoW. We've already seen tons of uh, hoopla about it all. We know it's going to be big in terms of its impact. I would actually argue though, that I think that this is a perfect environment or perfect scenario in which we can say, hey, look, here's classic WoW, and it works because of these basic tenants. So why don't we get back to having these basic tenants, but still keep innovating our games? And so I think, funny enough, you're going to see almost like a like going back in time. And what I mean by that is that new game developers and publishers are going to look at WoW Classic and think, okay, how can we like essentially take that idea and, and innovate just slightly or do it differently enough in order for us to be successful? So in a weird way, I don't necessarily think that it's backward progress. I think that it's forward progress, but it's forward progress with a couple steps backward first, if that makes sense. So it's almost like for the market to go forward, we almost have to take steps backwards because we have to remember why things worked in the past the way they did, why we like the games back then versus maybe necessarily now. Um, there's other like uh, things that kind of go with it. And sometimes looking back and studying the classics is important in order for us to be able to push forward. But no, I agree with you in the sense that 
I do hope, and I don't think that it will, but I do hope, of course, that it doesn't become, okay, if you don't just make another WoW classic, we're going to hate you. Because it's like, yeah, ultimately, we, w- we don't want to keep making the same kind of game, even if it is pretty good or pretty cool or whatever else your opinion is of the game itself. Um, we just want to use it as a blueprint. So I look at WoW Classic as a blueprint, um, a blueprint of how to get back to the core aspects of what makes MMOs good. And I think largely that's positive, but I guess we'll see. Okay. Yeah, so that was a good question, man. <laughs> oh, that, that was all for me. Alrighty. Uh, I appreciate you stopping by. Everybody thank Limpos for asking a question. It's a good one. And apparently Lions is excited that he gets to hear your voice. So there you go. Yay. All right. Anybody else ask me any questions in the meantime? I'm giving you guys 12 minutes. You got a 12-minute timer. I'm giving you 12 minutes, and that's it. I'm starting on a Dark Age of Camelot Phoenix server as a bone dancer. Any tips? Um, I don't know. I guess it would depend on what you mean by tips. At first, I would check the patch notes, because Phoenix server has uh, different patch notes than the original servers do. Um, obviously it uses a different patch as well. It uses an earlier patch. So I would just say, get familiar with the patch notes, get familiar what, with what has changed and, um, yeah, find a good group of players to play with. That's the simplest advice I guess I could offer when it comes to playing kind of classic games. Um, pay attention to the patch notes, find a wiki, something that can teach you how to play the game or players or, you know, like a guild or whatever else. And, um, that's probably a good place to start in terms of advice. Okay. MGPT says, thoughts on the sequel of Alien Isolation... Isolation, rather, being mobile exclusive. <laughs> Look, I'll never be team mobile game. Unless you can... You can if you can give me a mobile game that gives me the same experience my PC or my console can give me, maybe I'll start talking about the mobile uh, market. But until then, <laughs> no, no, no. How can indie studios get on a spotlight when trying to grow their new MMO server, especially when the game is not making money and the development team does not have an advertising budget? Um, so that's a good question, uh, Brian Tastic. I would say the easiest way is first and foremost, go to wherever Grassroots is. And unfortunately, the truth about Grassroots places, subreddits, forums, and, um, my Discord and these different places is just so you know, in the MMO market, there's a lot of jaded motherfuckers. (laughs) We've been misled a lot. So some of us, whenever we hear about new MMO servers or classic MMOs and whatever, we're just like, oh, great, more guys who have way too much power who are going to ego trip on a private server or we think about it as more of like okay what makes you different than all of these other servers or games or whatever else so really the best way to advertise classic servers um or indie studios like new mmo servers is first and foremost find your niche find your given audience um give them the kind of experience that they want and, and allow your marketing to be done primarily from word of mouth. And I know that sounds strange because it's like you're probably thinking, dude, it's like you're 30, 40 years outdated. But what I mean is like 
don't do what these other games do. Don't go to Twitch and pay someone $5,000 to play your game and whatever else, because although you will make a certain amount of money from initial sales, initial sales don't matter. <laughs> you need customers that will, will keep playing your games. If MMOs don't have enough population, they can function, right? So that's the big thing is, is like the, the, the indie companies that don't have the budgets to, to advertise in the same way that Atlas could when it paid like 16 different content creators thousands of dollars. Like, yeah, don't try and beat them where you can't beat them, which is monetary. You can't compete with those companies when it comes to money. But what you can compete is with the mind, right? You can compete with uh, having effective ways to communicate what your vision is, what your kind of game is, um, that sort of thing. It's, it's not easy to operate without having money or income, but in 2018, it's the easiest it's ever been because we have YouTube, right? We have Twitch. Um, again, you don't have to pay content creators. You can make your own kind of content or find people who are just passionate about your idea to make content for you. The point being is that you don't want impartial um, impartial uh, leads, I guess I would say. You don't want people who as soon as they get bored of the hoopla surrounding your game are going to drop it instantly. That's not the customer you want, ultimately speaking. You want a customer who's going to remain a customer and be loyal to you. So in order to have that, you have to elicit loyalty from your customers, which means you have to listen to them. You have to develop relationships with your community, aka forums and discords and and developer streams. There's so many ways to possibly get into it. I'm offering way too much free advice, so I'll go ahead and stop there. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, okay, Ulysses has a question. Seems to be a lot of major publishers releasing very bad and underdeveloped games. Do you think there's a connection, or is it coincidence? I'll go ahead and drag Ulysses in to answer this question. We only have seven minutes, so we got to move quick here. Hey, what's up, uh, Ulysses? Hey, how's it going? Hey, so to address your question, obviously that's a it's it's a hard question to answer in a short amount of time, but I think um between uh you know, the two of us and maybe even the chat, we can probably see at least some sort of like connection between uh, I guess what you're what you're trying to like uh, postulate here, which is like when we see a bunch of major publishers publish these kind of like shit or half-ass games. I think um we we talked about this before like my, and like in a minor fashion, ultimately, I think it's these companies are taking calculated risks. I mean, wouldn't you say ultimately like they believe that if they release the game, even if it has the negative publicity, it's not enough to dissuade them monetarily. Ultimately, that's what they think. Right. And I think largely it's been proven. I mean, look at Atlas. I can sit here and cry about Atlas and wildcard all I want to, but they still have 40,000 people playing the game right now. Right. Um, the question that begs for me is that if if the answer is is that there is a trend and the trend is that it's short term greed, we just push out a product and uh, they're going to buy it no matter what. Uh, the question that begs for me is then, well, why wouldn't they prefer uh, a more long term strategy? And the only answers I can come up with are, well, either the people involved are tr sort of trying to grab cash and get out of the industry. Or there's some other projects that they're trying to fund that they needed quick cash. Um, or even just more to... simply, right? They just have bills to pay, right? They they got to right. pay bills. Like kind of like you pointed out to me, people like Blizzard, they got to make a lot of money, right? 
Like they have so much uh, to to lose, and their standard of success rather is so much higher than like yours or mine. Like if you and I sell maybe ten of a product, that's like maybe that's pretty good for us. We're like, man, we're we feel pretty good about that. But obviously, this massive corporation who has so much costs, and as you said, current development costs, because they say that Blizzard, for example, is trying to create new games. It's like I I, I see what you're saying, but I think that for them. It really is just like um, they either don't see the consequences nearly as much or or they just have to satisfy their bottom line to the point to where they're willing, to, uh, willing sorry, to do very risky things in order to do that. Um, to put things into perspective, um, I was actually just this morning. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, this morning I was the latest uh, quarterly uh, uh, statements from Blizzard. They paid, uh, since uh, a year ago, uh, they paid $1.7 billion uh, in, in debt, uh, in long-term debts. But, you know, they've still got plenty of money. It just means that they will have less and less cash. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, they're going to run out of money. They're still going to have plenty of money even after they pay off all their debt. Um, and I used to think that maybe this was a broader trend in the market that, you know, because there are other companies. That also have this, you know, huge debt load that they need to pay off. But it's not every company that has that sort of problem that Blizzard does, and it's not even necessarily a problem for Blizzard. Um, it's just uh, more of a concern. Um, and uh, it makes me wonder, you know, is there which 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 is it? You know, is it the bills or is it the people? Um, yeah, that's basically, I guess, the the root of my question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously it's hard to know unless we know inner workings. But the, the simplest way that I like to think about it is like when you look at Blizzard, it's clear that their culture has changed, right? Like their their culture has changed and it's been pretty apparent now for a couple of years. But people more so have re- realized it the past year because they've made very obvious like non-Blizzard like bl- blunders, I guess I would say. Um, Blizzard is not typically someone who makes so many blunders like that because they're a lot more patient than most companies. They're a lot more willing to like sit on things and work on them. But it's almost like the the culture is what scares me the most that's changing. Because like the way I see it with Blizzard, especially right now with all of the stuff that they have to um, uh, cut costs on, especially, you know, since Activision is slowly starting to take over their company (laughs) uh, more and more uh, by the year. Now they don't even, like we talked about last time, they still don't have a CEO. They don't need one, uh, apparently. And I don't even think they have a CFO anymore. They just lost their CFO. (laughs) So so it's like we're seeing, uh, obviously, we saw a lot of top talent, top developers left Blizzard recently. And even just the past couple of years, they lost their head of Hearthstone. They've lost heads of WoW. Um, Of course, Heroes of the Storm isn't doing um, particularly well and whatever else. Um, their recent expansions haven't been doing so well. I think it's it's almost like, and I hate saying this because it sounds so like um, like a total gamer thing to say, but it's w- the difference between when games are made by gamers or 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 developers and when they're made by businessmen. It's just um, when when a game is made by somebody that doesn't have the same um, I guess uh, worries or standards or even just like mindset. When you put the developer decisions, for example, based on first and foremost, like monetary decisions, ultimately, like you think to yourself, okay, we can do this, but does it make monetary sense? Ultimately, 
bit by bit you start to lose more of the identity of like the developer right of, of the of the vision of whatever blizzard is as a, as a company that's kind of what i've noticed and i hate saying that because it always sounds like a cop-out answer to be like well um less less the developers are involved in decision making because it's like kind of like a general thing to say but i mean i think simply put it's becoming more and more apparent that uh, developers and those who actually work on the games and and those who you know theoretically should have close relationships with the customer base are having less and less relationship because as you know many companies utilize third party uh customer service or third party forum moderators so they're not even getting the feedback directly themselves and essentially they're making decisions based off of metrics and not actually what their audience wants and i think in the short term or sorry, uh, in the short term, it wasn't really that bad at first, but now that it's starting to happen more and more, and, and obviously they're starting to blunder as well, I think now it's becoming quite apparent to answer what somebody else's question in chat was as well, that Blizzard ultimately is losing the pulse of not only their audience, but the pulse of their own company. So, it, I mean, again, I, I know... I, I think I think you're right, and I think that that's apparent in some of the statements that have sort of leaked out of uh, Blizzard in particular about sort of the culture shock of, you know, new management and losing old management. And I want to be clear, you know, I do while I do think that, you know, money and, and bills are a concern, I, I don't think that Bethesda or Blizzard or any of these companies are going to be hurting for cash ever. I think they're always going to have the money. Uh, I think I think you I think you're right. It probably is a culture thing a leadership thing a uh it's the people involved uh more than anything uh and i have to wonder um if it's a generational thing or if it's you know uh or if it's just you know the current client uh corporate client in the games industry i mean that's that's actually a really good question and one that honestly would probably take me like months and months and years upon research to really unravel but it's a question that i do want to unravel and it's that ultimately speaking when a game company ascends to the next level publisher slash corporation level becomes a publicly traded company does it almost inherently lose what we love about game companies which is like the the, the personality the uh the interaction the the relationship between me and like my developer or the you know developers or whatever else it, it, again i know that's like more of like a capitalism discussion and that's a whole another discussion to have another time but it do, you do kind of start to see the signs especially you know me having covered so many deaths of different games now you start to kind of see and you're just like man the culture is definitely different than it used to be we know that but is it necessarily good because it does seem like in many ways as these companies become more successful and larger and larger and they have hundreds of people working on their team i mean like shit activision and those companies have like what three to five hundred person dev teams i mean it's like insane sizes that we could never possibly imagine back in the 90s or back in the early 2000s and so is it a cost of just go getting to that level of success like gaming now is the number one uh pastime for for like entertainment Right. It's obviously it's a long like years ago it eclipsed uh, the uh, film industry. Now it's number one. And even during the depression or sorry, recession of sorts that we had back when the uh, housing market uh, crashed, gaming actually increased in sales. It, it didn't. It's one of the, those markets that isn't hurt by the current market. Not really, because ultimately when we get depressed, we get sad and we don't have that much money. 
we still want to play games. <laughs> That's true. To a certain degree, uh, inter- the entertainment industry is a is a tad uh, depression proof in a way. Um, but yeah, I just it seems like this this last year of releases from the major companies could really be characterized as sort of smash and grab development. And I have to wonder also, it's not just that you know the people involved. Also, you know, just like you were saying, and it's so different than it was in the '90s. Uh, the business side, the, the development side of it. Um, you think now, it used to be in the 90s that when you released a product, you weren't ever going to update that game. It wasn't like, you know, you put out the disc and then you can put out a patch in a day. You know, the day one, you couldn't have a day one patch like you can today, much less, you know, a month, two months on. And I have to wonder if uh, if maybe that's contributing. Maybe developers are relying too much on the idea that, well, we can release it in a broken product now, and eventually, uh, it will uh, will fix it, and it'll and it'll be a success eventually. Yeah, and I think that's because essentially, I mean, and you know, I I love some of the early expansions and MMOs, but even in those expansions, like compare those early expansions to like current expansions and MMOs, it's like bonkers level a difference in content. Like when you look at like what, for example, the Burning Crusade added versus like BFA added. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just like. It's it feels way more polished, way more put together. They they understood the theme better. They told the story more effectively. It, it it's it's unfortunate that with BFA we have such a negative taste in our mouth with WoW. But ultimately speaking, people launching half-ass expansions has been around for ages, especially in MMOs. So it's almost like the the I don't know, the chickens are coming home to roost in some ways where it's like we're finally realizing as an audience as a consumer base, we're becoming more educated where we're just like, you know what? You can't launch half-assed games anymore or expansions. We're not okay with it. We want it to be good enough to play and experience um, day one. And, I mean, that's just a natural progression, and it's good to see that. I think even the update cycles uh, of games have changed a lot, too, um, in in that time period. Uh, I I know I hate, you know, I keep coming back to it, but I'm going to one more time revisit uh, you know, one of the big differences between Burning Crusade and going into Wrath of the Lich King, not that those either of them were bad expansions, obviously, but uh, in Wrath of the Lich King, when ICC came out, when Ice Crown Citadel came out, uh, you were expected as a brand new raider to be able to just hop straight into ICC and basically do it with, you know, just some dungeon. Um, you know, you could, it was, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you could very quickly, you were expected to start at the latest update, the latest. In Burning Crusade, um, you had to start at the bottom if you yeah, if all of your point. if all of your your friends were coming in and you were going to go raid together you couldn't start in the, the top raid the right. latest patch you had to start at Karazhan and then do each tier tier four tier five tier six and then eventually you may not even get like my friends you know we didn't we never made it to the top tier content because we hadn't worked to that point by the time wrath came out um and that's you know we could argue the merits and and you know the pros and the cons um, but it's drastically different, and I think that that trend carries over to the broader industry. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a good observation, and and um, I I won't even fully go into it because it just made me think about another topic that I've thought about before, which is kind of like the concept of um, how it's such a shame that when people go back and try and play WoW, for example, uh, even you know now, of course, like without classic WoW being out, it without private servers as well it's nearly impossible to ever have any sort of inkling as to what the previous uh, game played like. Because it's just like, 
you're so disconnected from it. Like you said, like when we used to get expansions and MMOs, expansions were just expansions of content. It, it didn't completely make it to where now the game is played in this way and this way only. Like it was kind of like introducing new content, but now like from what you're saying, what I've noticed obviously going back and playing games, uh, MMOs that have been around for a long time now, is it's like you try and go back and you're just literally never going to get the same kind of experience because the game has changed so much, but not just changed so much. It's also changed in the way that it evolved. So although, you know, early on, I think we can say that games had expansions and expansions essentially weren't really about being like standalone initially. They were just, you know, expansions of content. But expansions kind of got to the point where they almost became standalone in some ways. Like, I think, they wow, are. nowadays... I would absolutely argue that 100%, you know, since Cataclysm, actually even since Late Wrath, I would argue that uh, the latest patch is the expansion. Not even the whole expansion. Not even, like, all of, you know, Battle for Azeroth isn't relevant anymore. It's only the latest raid. That, right. That's it. Yeah, which is like, to me, it's just a huge thing. And it's like, when I think about uh, WoW, for example, when I went back and I was playing BFA, I thought to myself, I was like, man, I would have really loved a chance to go back through the entire experience and get to the new experience of content. But unfortunately, these days, when they when they uh, allow you to buy a max character, when they uh, start off content, as you said, essentially where the new expansion is, which essentially means that everybody should be starting at that point. It, it it just it feels so strange when you have brand new players coming into the game who are playing at the same level that you're playing at. It's just like I, that's such a weird concept looking back at MMOs because it was like, man, back then uh, I think about games like Guild Wars, which is obviously a very different game. But it's like whenever the expansions came out, you felt like you were just playing like um, completely different games. <laughs> like you're you're just not even playing the same game at all because it's got such a different you know kind of core content to it than uh, the original games have, but that's a whole other thing that I want to talk about some other time because it it is kind of like maybe that's like the downside of relying so much on those types of expansions. This is like by the time you get to BFA, what is WoW anymore? Like, can we still answer that question? What the game is? Is it, is it the same as it once was? Of course, we know it isn't. That's why everybody's asking for classic games. So <laughs> I don't know. I maybe the, I can understand why they made that change though, because you know. You get to a certain point where you have four and five expansions out, you and you it take it would take if you if you had to progress from the bottom up to that latest expansion, it would take a very long time, um, a, a, probably an unreasonable amount of time. And that's the you know sort of the criticism that birthed that new system is that you know if the funnest the most fun part is the like why not shoehorn new players in? But what I would argue uh, a counter to that is that maybe we should focus more on why is the latest patch so much more fun than the old content and how can we make the old content more fun so that working up from the bottom to the top is a fun experience from start to finish rather than trying to i guess the cheaper solution just shoehorning new people into the most fun content well yeah it's kind of like um uh i don't know when you look at like an old an old school car it's like I, I had a really old car and I used to always make sure it was cleaned and, and it like it had a decent paint job and I would spray my tires, my spray, my tires would look good. But at the end of the day, the engine was still old as shit. So it's like, I can add all the bells and whistles to it, but if I don't actually address the core, 
which is the engine. You know, I'm not trying to say that the engine in the engine from a video game, but just, you know, the engine from the car. If I don't address the core issues, it doesn't matter how many bells and whistles I put on it. It's never going to actually evolve, like truly evolve as as an engine or in this case, case, sorry, as a game. So it's like, I I agree. I think it's almost um, because of the theme park uh, focus on content. We release this new expansion. We put all this money into it. Yeah, we want everyone to experience it right away because this is our best content that we've put out in the past, you know, however many months. And so this is our, theoretically speaking, I think they think of it as like, this is our best foot forward right now. But instead, I feel like a much more healthy long-term perspective is here's our base game. How can we slowly evolve it after each expansion but still maintain that same uh, experience where it's like if you're new to it, you still got to start from the beginning. Like you should not be starting at the very end. It just, I don't know, it feels weird to me whenever I play a game and I can just start at the very end. Uh, I do want to respond to something I just saw. Uh, Limpos was saying that, and he's right, that they did attempt to do something like this in World of Warcraft during Cataclysm, where they revamped basically all of the old world content. Um, I think, however, that my argument was would be that uh, to Limpos is that doesn't go far enough because the one through sixty experience was arguably what you spent the least amount of time on. Um, most of your time was spent raiding. And I, while I think that Olympos is touching on something that's that I agree with, that um, that you know it isn't enough just to go back and make you know uh, make it better. I think that there might be a better middle ground where, for example, like in Wrath, you know, in uh, Burning Crusade, Burning Crusade, you didn't have to start at you know Molten Core to get to Black Temple, but you did have to start at Karazhan. So maybe that there's a happy middle ground where you start at you know, four or five tiers back and have to work your way up. Um, but I, st- I, I still hold by that uh, you should have to, it should be a journey, and we shouldn't, You sh- as a developer, I think it's a mistake to hold up your latest, uh, your latest, uh, you know, development as your greatest development and the only development. I think, um, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this, but I think that uh, when you look at MMOs versus like old school MMOs versus new school MMOs. Everyone likes to talk about, oh, the old ones are better, but they never really explain why. And I think the main reason why the old ones are better is because they actually serve as a virtual world. And to explain like the concept, let's say, I don't know, this world we're currently living in right now is a virtual world. It's an MMO. Whenever some kind of new bit of content or patch comes out, do people start directly at that kind of content? No, they still have to build themselves up. Like it's like it's a real ecosystem. Like you got to start somewhere. So even if you're like a newborn baby, you don't start in the new content. And if you're like a young kid, you don't start doing the new content immediately. You have to build up to some sort of thing. When you when you look at like a virtual world, actually trying to be a world, if it's trying to be a world, it's always useful to start from the beginning. Because there's always there's always a need to start from the beginning, and there's always a uh, a utility from starting from the beginning. But when you take all of that away, or you don't find any way to make old content still relevant, it becomes irrelevant, especially in theme park games. So it's like for me, I think the easiest way to make it to where old content is still useful is you essentially still have to make it part of the game. Every new expansion can't be redo everything we just did. And so start at the new zone. It has to be more of like a, uh, I feel like a gradual change, but also a change that first and foremost focuses on 
This is a world that we're crafting here. How can we make this continue to be a world we're crafting? Because if you lose sight of the virtual world aspect, which is ultimately the tenet for how MMOs were created in the first place, um, if you lose sight of that, after a while, your game starts to just feel like a multiplayer game. It doesn't really feel like a massive multiplayer online game. And to provide a simple example, let's say a new expansion comes out with a new dungeon zone or whatever else. As a, as a, let's say I'm a new player, I buy the expansion, but I have to start from the very beginning. Um, that teaches me an important lesson, just like in life, that you don't just start exactly at the fun parts. <laughs> you still got to go through the other parts. You still got to meet people. You still got to level. You still have to go through the experience of playing an MMO before you reach the end of that content like loop or whatever else where the new content is. But, I mean, let's just be honest. It's much easier to do it the other way. <laughs> so everyone does it the other way now. But anyway, that that was a that was a good question. You 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 somehow made me go sixteen minutes over. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Sorry. Kudos and credit for that. But it was a good question, and you brought up um, some points that I hope I can address at some other point. But it's going to take. It's going to have to be a full video because there's a lot to talk about with those particular things. And uh, the best part about it all is it's just um, this industry is so early and it's so budding. That there's always topics and, and, and bits of discussion to have like this, where it's just like, we really don't know how things are going to be in the future. I mean, again, we could look back in 10, 20 years and just be like, man, like we had it so ass backwards. Like, what were we doing? And it usually works like that. But right now, we're kind of just stuck in what we're stuck now. So we're kind of just uh, slowly uh, interpreting whatever happens to us as it happens without, you know, the, the, the ability to look back with hindsight. I, I really hope that that's the case. Uh, I hope that the industry learns learns both from its mistakes and its past successes uh, better than it does now. I agree. I appreciate you asking your question. And everybody in chat, please thank Ulysses for stopping by and, and uh, asking us a question during our call-in segment. You're welcome. Goodbye. See you later. All right, everybody, I think we've reached the point where I can finally say goodbye to you guys. Um, I don't think we have any more questions right now. So, I, again, thanks to everybody who took the time to ask questions, to send them in, and, of course, to call in. Uh, I think we raised a lot of interesting points that probably deserve some more uh, closer inspection, maybe even, like, a dedicated video or two. But um, we'll see, because I have a lot of stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be a long video. Um the uh the next death of a game, it's not going to come out this week or the next week. It's it might be a little bit delayed. Actually, it might be next week. Uh next weekend, I should say. But we're still working on our previous video, which is pretty difficult to do. It's not a death of a game video that we're working on. I've already talked about it. It's an announcement video, Patreon announcement video. It's trickier to do because we have a lot of live footage. And live footage is obviously way more difficult to edit than just like video or a gameplay or whatever else. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Um, thank you for joining me on episode 16 of the Six Pixels Under podcast. Um, I'd like to thank all of those who stuck by since the very beginning. All of those who asked questions and participated in chat. Thank you very much. I'm Nerdslayer, your host. And I'm finally reaching the point where I'm going to say goodbye to all of you. Again, thank you. I will see you guys next Monday. As always, 
And um, I will update you guys on the status of our next couple of videos as it becomes apparent to me as well. All right. See you later, everybody. Have a good rest of your week. Um, have a good rest of your Friday afternoon or night, depending on where you're from. And uh, I hope you have a productive rest of your day and productive rest of your all right, guys, I will see you later. Goodbye for real. Peace.